Welcome to the A to C podcast. We're your unfiltered ticket to the world behind high achievers of every kind. No ads here, it's just pure value. So do me a favor and share this if you find some inspiration, motivation, or something else in between. Authentic, no constraints, no limits. Let's go. So how have you been? Like, how's it been going? We just talked. When did we talk? Was that, it seems like um, a week ago, but. You're right. Probably a month ago now. No, I mean, it's it's been more often lately. We've been talking. Wait, let me start my recording in case I have some sort of a genius moment and I got to have my B-roll here. So, which I'm sure your team will be awesome and like pull the reels and all the stuff since I I feel like it's, it's funny how we're all very incestuous that way, like in a good way where we're all like helping each other out with all the stuff. Like I scratch your back, you scratch mine and we all take care of each other in a really good way because we're all entrepreneurs and we know the the trials and tribulations. I mean, I had it earlier today. So I I had the honor of speaking to your people last week. That would be probably why you remember. We've had so much good feedback on that, by the way. Really? Was it good? I know there was only what, like 30 or 35 people on that call, but so we've gone back and looked at the analytics. It's been that episodes had 200 unique views. Nice. So folks just with the beginning of the year and, and whatever they missed, but they've gone back in, watched the recording, 200 unique views and over 600 views all the way through, start to finish. Wow. So, so we, you got some replayers there. Yeah. Nice. That's some good stuff. I mean, I did drop a lot on on that one. And I think too, you know, and if, and if they want the slides, I'm happy to send it. You know, I had like 10 opt-ins off the video. I did have to... Uh, the, so for those of you listening, lesson learned, do not change your domain for your funnel for your free gift five minutes before you go on stage, even if it's virtual, because mm-hmm. there's a cascade of things you don't think about in your haste. And one of those was not updating the email and text message link. So everybody opted in. Thank God on the confirmation page, you know, they can... Mm-hmm download the stuff but i was like shit so i sent everybody that did opt in already i was like oops the joys of tech and team here you go so i was like thanks for your patience yeah it happens or a lot of folks don't realize like a lot of because most of us doing a lot of what we're doing run our domains through go through google like google is is by far the easiest and the fastest so like if you're using godaddy or others it takes even longer frankly but sometimes google like when you update a domain or you, it can take up to 24 hours. A lot of folks don't realize, usually it's pretty quick, but it can take up to 24 hours to transfer all that data. That's true. No, yeah. I just changed it within my disruptor software. <laughs> okay. Just because yeah. I have like those, those friendly domain links of, you know, making it super easy. So it's like virtual coffee, bookwithstacy.com, you know, any sort of gift of some kind. It's either your friend Stacy or VIP Stacy. And I was like, it's the beginning of the year. I'm going to make it as short as possible. So I went with VIP Stacy, but it used to be your friend Stacy. Ours is still rebagencysyndicate.com backslash this, backslash that. We're, yeah. we're, we'll work on that. Yeah, I try to make it easy and efficient, mainly because I am aka lazy, but I just go with very efficient in the bandwidth to remember things. You know, running an empire of multiple companies. Okay. So are you all ready for the trip out to Scottsdale? 
Yes, actually we are. We're just starting to pull things together. I'm going to order the books to come, you know, fingers crossed. They've been so slow. So there is a chance that I might not have them in time. So we'll see. So I might say, hey, as a gift. Right. <laughs> you know, Opt in. We'll mail it out to you. We'll mail it out. Yeah, mail it out. Because I mean, again, that's just real life in the world of running a business. So, but we're super, super, super excited. We did want to go to wine country and do all the stuff, but we're doing a big back end build out for an accounting firm right now. So right. it requires a lot of Stacy's problem solving. Trust me, I understand what you mean. Like behind the smile, I understand what the hell you mean. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm. I love my team. They're amazing. It's it's I think it's the perks of surrounding yourself with people who are very complimentary. They don't think like you do, which is good sometimes. Right. Bad other times, right? Where I think this is the 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 challenge for very visionary people. We think so far ahead and kind of so in such big ways. We forget about those small details and I think hackingly, <laughs> lazily make assumptions on people understanding what we mean sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And I think so like for me, you know, I was sharing with you some of my recent frustrations or, or different things because I, I have. I built a team that is very complimentary and 90% like that's what we need. It's the 10% that's been kicking our butts lately. And it's sore thumb theory. It doesn't matter how healthy the rest of your hand is. Hit your thumb with a hammer. That's the one finger you're going to think about, right? And so I, I think this, like anyone who's like doing something significant and starting to make some money, you need to hire complimentary. Your strengths are your strengths and my weaknesses. But I'm starting to really believe when you really get to that level and you're really grabbing traction, you need to hire somebody who is you. That's not the first hire you should make. No. But it is a hire you should make because it's like you say, it's whether it's vision or my problem is peripheral, right? And one of my strengths is the ability to be laser focused on something, but I still have a peripheral vision. And if I see, it's almost like playing the, you know, when the gopher pops up and you hit it with the hammer. Whack-a-mole, yeah. Yeah, whack-a-mole. <laughs> when you're playing that and this pops up, I have the ability to see that pop up and gauge it really quickly and effectively. Does it need attention? And if it does, how do I bring that inside this laser focus or how do I, you know, just ignore it? And I do that really well. Other people don't. But now, you know, I make the assumption that everyone does. And so in their own job, in their own capacity, these little peripherals pop up and they're not able to judge it. And that's what's been kicking our butt. And so it's like, okay, I need, I can't. I can't not babysit what they're doing because somebody has to be doing that, but I need to not be babysitting it. So I need to bring on somebody who has that ability to, to judge problem the peripherals. <laughs> yeah. And it is, problem solve. It, well, discernment. I think that's it. The, the judging the peripherals, right, is like what to actually focus on is that, that really well-earned skill of discern discernment. Of like, what is important right now? What do I need to focus on? Because it's that decision making. And then being able to problem solve if someone or the situation is kind of clumsily slowing things down. Right. So, you know, I realize that's a lot of what my challenge has been where I'm like, okay, I'm doing my best to not enable people just coming to me. <laughs> hey, how do I, how do I do this? And I'm like, 
figure it out. <laughs> Google real good. Here's here for it. I'm sure you'll figure it out, right? Like doing that in a transformational leadership way where I used to be very transactional in my leadership was it was like dictator. And that's such a disservice to the team and their zones of genius. But yeah, there's still those wrinkles. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the pendulum, right? Like on one yeah. side, it's dictator slash micromanage slash babysit them. The other side of the pendulum is is figure it out. Fucking Google it, right? Like it isn't hard. It This isn't fucking hard. What are you, stupid? This isn't hard. That's the other side. When in reality, the right answer, it's somewhere in between. Somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Well, and in, in navigating, right, figure it out versus reactively making decisions yeah. and not consulting for <laughs> it's like this is like the trials and tribulations of leadership right and running a team it's it is yeah because i noticed that with jeff you know this goes into the joys as well of working with your spouse you know hiring him into the second company and and running a lot of the back end of the agency and obviously he'll be my my wingman at the DTDW event, which will be awesome. So uh, fingers crossed if we have our that we have our books, <laughs> so he can run he can run sales for that, and just kind of giving people info and stuff. So, but it is it's it's saying okay, I know where you're at in your journey and navigating the challenging you to grow and learn, and you know not enable versus okay, I got to get this done, right? And then kind of working through that and how do we address those challenges to make not hit that again moving forward, right? And yeah. especially when your team isn't necessarily, regardless of spouse or not, or family or not, just because everybody on your team's at a different place in their personal development journey. So their ability to move through the shit quickly is they're not they're not necessarily there like you know people like you and I who are so obsessed <laughs> with growth and navigate the discomfort of that really well yeah, it's it's interesting people are interesting aren't they and mm -hmm. skill sets like the the whole peripheral and, and discernment and it would be really easy to say well that's something that's earned because I've been you know I, I burned my hand a thousand times or I've been bit a thousand times and so now I know but I don't think that's the case for me. That was something that was always a skill. It's all. It's also why I've always really excelled, and because that decision making and making processes more effective, making things more effective. Anything from when I was in automotive to I. I spent three months working in a cargo trailer manufacturing plant. It was in between jobs, and I didn't know what to do. And my all my friends were working there, so I was like, "Yeah, screw it." So I went and worked for them. And in three months, went from new line assembly tech to to you know a line manager or assistant manager on the back line. I think I was an eighteen year old kid at that point. Yeah, I was still eighteen, but it was just oh well, that doesn't need to be. That's such a wasteful action. Why the hell would you do it that way? Just do it this way. And it's just like that's always kind of been a thing for me. So I don't know. People are interesting, but everybody, I won't say everybody has those traits. There are just some freaking morons out there. But most folks have like these in it skills and the challenges in entrepreneurship, like in building a team, Stacey. And I, I want your insight on this or your input. The challenge becomes 
whether you're interviewing or you're working with the team or whatever, you're building a team, people have their innate abilities, which is the ones I want to tap into. Yeah, there's zones of genius I, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And then the they have the shit they want to be good at. And so that's what they advertise. I don't want to hire somebody for what they want to be good at because it's going to cost me money, piss me off, and I'm eventually going to fire you. I want to hire you for your innate abilities, your zone of genius, and help you lean into that, monetize it, and, and help you show you how to build the life of your dreams on that, not just financially, but fulfillment-wise as well. Yeah. But that's the hard thing because everybody hides those innate abilities. And, well, they, um, they, they don't see the value in it. That's the problem because it's the things yeah. I have these conversations with people all the time, especially when I'm going into organizations and creating, you know, helping them build high performing teams and going through this leadership development process to where they're able to truly extract the, the hidden genius in their team members. So they're, this is how you increase the capacity of your organization. So, you know, just looking at the numbers, if you want to sell your organization, it's not about what you're earning now. It's about your capacity to scale or grow further, right? That's what they're going to make that valuation off. And if you, everybody on your team is maxed out, if all of your systems are maxed out, you're going to get valued at what you're earning. So if you really craft high-performing teams where everybody's functioning in their zone of genius, a lot of their work becomes easy and effortless. So now everyone on your teams individually are performing better, requiring less effort, less energy to get the job done because they're doing stuff that is this magic space that you're talking about, which is just, it's phenomenal. And when you do that at the individual level and then within the team, it helps your entire organization. And it's that secret to breaking through the big plateaus. So what's and the secret just, for business owners and entrepreneurs to be able to suss out zone of genius versus what the fuck you're telling me you're good at yeah. and, and your resume says you're good at it. Oh, and by the way, your references say you're good at it. And, but what's like, how do I find that before I even make the hire? Or if I've already made the hire, how do I find it now? I don't want to let go of you. I feel like you're the right person. I need to reposition you. I got to find it now. So the the bigger challenge is most people don't understand the, how to differentiate between genius and superpower. They are not the same. Your superpower is something you are really, really great at. Mm -hmm. However, it drains you. Your zone of genius mm -hmm. is the thing you're great at that energizes you. That's the difference. And most people spend a lifetime only maxing out their peak their their potential at superpower they never reach their max way up here with their zone of genius become the way basically impacting the world and existing in this genius zone is there danger though for an employer in embracing somebody's zone of genius because it's it's what energizes them but it's not necessarily what they're inherently amazing at and there's a cost of fucking tuition to become good at a thing. Well, I th I don't know a lot of people whose zone of genius is something they're not great at because it's already easy and effortless for them. It's something that comes easy. They're amazing at it. They are amazing at it. If they're not, it's not their genius. So it, it's still like you're amazing at it and it energizes you. Yes. Not just it energizes you because for some people they'd be like, well, shit. 
meth and energizes me. I, yeah, I, masturbation I, I like can meth. energize you. Yeah, like, for real, <laughs> right? So, Is that your zone so of genius? New. There's only so many ways to cob at the top. You must like. So we'll let's let's clarify this, right? Yes. Zone of genius is your ability to impact, right? You're solving a problem, you're being of service, you're helping make the world a better place in some capacity that is completely easy and effortless to you. It energizes you. It turns you into the energizer bunny because you're not drained doing it. It's you see people get into their flow state because that's their zone of genius. It is an easy way for you to get into flow because you're doing something you love. So for me, one of those things that I can do is paint and draw. That's not necessarily my zone of genius for impacting the world because I'm not out there selling my paintings, but it's one of those activities for me to activate flow state and just nurture my downtime that I need, that creative time that's completely disconnected from work. But the magic of that is because I have those disconnected from work flow state hobbies that are zone of genius. It helps me better access my genius in the business, doing other things like creative problem solving, because that creative time painting is using some of the same parts of my brain to solve problems. So it's not just logic versus creative and emotion. Like there's a lot of this synergy between right brain, left brain, that if you're truly getting into that space of high performance, you're actually leveraging both. So what, what got you into high performance in the first place? Just recognizing I was one of those. We'll say I'm the recovering high achiever. Why, why should we say that? I'm the recovering high achiever. And I that that is not sustainable because achievement is based on external conditions where high performance is fueled by internal enjoyment and fulfillment. It's very different. It's the internal motivators, not the external. So like you chase the shit you were told to chase. Yeah. And you again and again and again got it and realized I'm still freaking miserable. Mm -hmm. Why? And that kind of led to where you are now. Yes. Yes, exactly. You know, it was it was very early on in my life recognizing that growing up in a house with emotionally unavailable parents and early divorce and moving around a lot and you know just all the different childhood traumas that everybody can go through the list that we all have I learned to perform you know where it was all about doing things to get the attention doing things to get the accolades or the approval that I compartmentalized as that's love Right. Because again, I mean, just generational trauma and everybody's working with the toolkit and the capacity they have. It's just the way it is. Right. And so as we're learning these unhealthy things, it was all achievement. It was do good in school, do good in sports, you know, be the person that I thought I that I should be based on the parameters others are expecting. Because a lot of me getting to be me was not okay. You know, I'm an ADHD kid and girls express it differently 
especially as children, than the boys. Like the boys, you always knew, right? Bing, 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 running all over, right? And I was very active, but it showed up in different ways. So my ability to fit into this mold of expectation that my parents wanted, I just learned to kind of morph and and just fit the situation. So as a leader today, it's great. I've got amazing resilience. I've got amazing adaptability. I understand and communicate with a variety of people because there were so many different situations that I was put in and challenged with. But everything around my sense of identity was completely external. I had no esteem, no security with who I was, this identity, because I always felt insecure, unsafe. And it was just from having a lack of boundaries, a lack of learning things like respect. And because my identity was always tied to external things, I started going through what I call chasing the dragon of achievement. Or later, I see this in entrepreneurship or just what people think are high performers, chasing the dragon of fulfillment, right? They're like, I just want to live my purpose and and do these big, amazing things and all of this stuff. But it's something that they're always chasing and never allowing themselves to experience because they're still looking outside themselves and not willing to go into those deep, dark places where the holes that they're trying to fill actually are. And so I was that chaser. I was always chasing. I mean, God, I, I graduated, well, I got out of the army, you know, so I got wounded in Iraq, get medically discharged, go back to college, do four years and three, because why wait? (laughs) Right. Then I'm so focused on my grade because this is my sense of identity is around this achievement that I ended up graduating valedictorian as a non-traditional student in biology while balancing marriage and son and dogs and responsibilities just because I needed that. I was chasing that, but I was so busy chasing the achievement to make me feel like I had this sense of enoughness while at the same time, my my marriage was suffering. Like, and we're early into the marriage and it's already starting to suffer because being emotionally available is not something I learned how to do. Have hard conversations. We didn't grow up with that. So, you know, it was, and that showed up in business. What a lot of people don't talk about is when you get into owning a business and becoming an entrepreneur is it's constant triggers of all of your inner worthiness wounds from early childhood because you're constantly in a state of discomfort. So your primitive brain is constantly on survival saying unsafe, unsafe, unsafe. So stress goes high and we end up going into these old habits. So I was chasing the money, chasing the clients. And honestly, the first few years in business, it cost me money because I was just like going through all of this effort, not realizing what I was doing. And I'm like in this reaction mode all the time. And when you're in stress state, your, your stress response is fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. So it shows up as the perfection and procrastination. It shows up like boundary challenges and not respecting your time. It shows up like avoidance. It shows up like impulsivity, like squirrel, shiny object, right? All of those sabotage things show up because 
our nervous system's elevated, and we're responding to this sense of chaos. Now, the flip side is, especially for people like you and me, who we have these, you know, crazy backstories, that trauma, childhood adversity, actually drives entrepreneurship and problem solving. 90% of entrepreneurs come from some type of childhood adversity, 75% from big T trauma, like the big stuff. And so it creates the resilience. It creates our ability to handle the chaos of the instability that comes with with business ownership, not knowing what your income is going to be some months, right? Like that's a lot that some people just cannot handle. They're just not built that way, but we are. But that's why we struggle with sabotage so much and why I focus so much on sabotage proofing your business because I'm like, nothing's going to get in your way more than you are. <laughs> like The second you're willing to own that shit and like deal with the root because it's you. So that was the challenge that I was in. I was like, why is my business suffering? Why am I struggling? Why is this just falling apart? You're doing the exact same stuff that led to you being twice your body weight, marriage falling apart, losing your corporate career, losing or health suffering, like all of the same stuff and playing out the exact same cycle. And so it was when I decided to hire a coach and really do the work, the root work, the real work to change how I was showing up and who I was being in my life. And most importantly at the time, my business as well, which obviously it's all of it, when I was really willing to get honest with myself, instantly the money started pouring in because I stopped being a cog blocker to what I wanted. Because the second I went from achiever to performer, I was making sure I was focusing on how I'm showing up. What's the energy I'm in? Am I taking care of myself? Am I showing up to just serve free of attachments and expectations? It just changed the complete energy. And all of a sudden, you know, the same people who were in my ecosystem for years who would not pay me for the exact same program at $1,500, all of a sudden would pay in full for 15K because I finally showed the fuck up to be the leader, the impactor, the guide they needed. So that is kind of the long story to (laughs) the difference between a high achiever and a high performer. But who was Stacy in Iraq? You know, that was actually one of those sort of, one of those periods of time condensed where I went through the shedding of one of the masks, right? Of, Of shifting from being who I should be to more in my zone of genius. Let's start like before you even got there, right? What made you decide to join up with the armed forces and like what, how did that come about? And then, you know, you got shipped out to Iraq. You spent some time Mm -hmm. there. I'd love to hear about that. I know everyone else would. Uh, I don't know if you want to share, but you know, how did you become injured? And yeah. uh, So the, the metaphysical story is by around the age of nine or so. And I just knew somehow my life would be involved with the military. And it had nothing to do with any, you know, family history or or any of that stuff. It was purely this, just this knowing. 
you know, we could get into past lives or, you know, whatever you want to put a framework around it. it. It's just unknowing. And, but I didn't know when that would happen. So I did the shoulds. Because again, I'm a pleaser. People pleaser like crazy. And so the should was you should go to college. That was the only pathway I was given for after high school. So I went to college. And it just wasn't, I, w- I didn't even know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted to do. It felt like a waste of time. By the second year in, I'm just like, I am so over it. I need a break. So I moved from Alaska to Utah, Salt Lake City. <laughs> and I'm there for three years, just kind of figuring things out and starting to build a sense of community. And Were you and- Mormon? No, no. Why Salt Lake City? I, I was born and raised <laughs> Mormon. So I have yeah. to ask, like, why... In Salt Lake City. <laughs> so my mom ended up having emergency surgery in Salt Lake City, and I just fell in love with it. So she was, say, was actually Salt Lake City down... is a smog-ridden shithole. <laughs> so I'm just compared I'm to out. compared to where I was in Alaska, though, in Fairbanks, That's you know, cool. it had so much more culture and community and activities, it's, and just the beautiful yeah. nature. It's not that a bad I still place. Had. Yeah, it's not a bad place. It is beautiful. Being able to wake up in the morning and the mountains are always right there if you can see them through the smog. And But it is. Yeah. No, I, lo- I love it out there. I love the mountains. I love that you can be, you're so close to the desert and just there's such a variety, you know, geographically. And so, because she was working in Southern Utah. She was in like Zion National Park at the time. And so needless to say, I liked it. It was better than Alaska. Alaska had it served its perfect purpose. You know, I'm not bashing it by any means, but 13 to 19 formative years to be in Alaska. So, and mind you, I couch surfed to finish high school. So, like, my mom moved away at 16. She moved me from Illinois, from Chicago to Alaska at 13. And then at 16, she moved down southern Alaska. And I was like, I'm not moving. She's like, okay, I'm still going. Thanks. So needless to say, this was not the first time that I went through grade A abandonment issues. So that's just one of those big T, (laughs) big T trauma things. But so mind you, this whole time I am in this constant stream of unhealthy, toxic, abusive relationships with guys. Because again, that was one of those identity things with these massive daddy issues. (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) It, I nothing happened that I did not allow that I did not you know grow up thinking was okay because of what I, I was exposed to as a kid with my dad. So I had all these daddy issues and and was again searching for that external validation, especially after being relocated from my entire family and sense of sense of external identity and sense of community at thirteen, you know instantly find a guy. Super. And of course, you know, it's like a lot of people, when we have that trauma, we have like this, this magnetism of other fucked up people. <laughs> you know, if you're a pleaser, you're, you know, and have no boundaries, you're gonna attract a narcissist. And what happened? You get married. That's what you do. But just, you know, it was like one long term toxic relationship into another during this time. But I hit that point where I was coasting. And I knew I was coasting. I was stagnant. And I was like, I need something. And it was something I needed that was so big that it was, nope. When I know something, I just know something. And I do it. And I knew that was time. So I started talking to the recruiter, figuring out, you know, 
which branch I wanted to go to and what I wanted to do. And just when I commit, I commit. That's it. Done. Well, so done, done. So I joined. No, February 2001 is when I joined. Ooh, damn. Mind you. Yeah, right? Perfect damn. timing. So my right first deployment. Yes. My very first deployment was cleaning up anthrax at the Pentagon after 9-11. So oh, we were at the other totally ground about zero. The yeah. And then right after that, it was hauntavirus. So the rice and toxin and France and like oh, all the different shit. So yeah, I, hence super nerd. I have no shame in showing my geek. I will nerd out on all my my amazing science stuff. So yeah, I did buy, I did chemical and biological warfare detection in the army, but I was in the army's only bioactive bio warfare detection unit. So that's what we did. We were basically mobile lab. But that's not what I did in Iraq. So I, I was supposed to go to Afghanistan, but got hurt before that. So stayed in the States. And then I was on How the did you front. Get hurt before that? Concussion. Was it like a Concussion. service wound or was it like playing tennis and sprained an ankle? Yeah, just stupid shit. Like, <laughs> so the yeah. fact that you don't want to get into rough the housing, tells me, rough mm. housing, <laughs> rough housing. Well, I could say, you know, before Jeff and I got married, he dropped me on my head. So, oh my God. I don't know if we were sober. <laughs> People's elbow. Yeah. So, well, you know, we'll just go with that. So, but it was a serious concussion. I actually got knocked out. Like, so it was a little blackout situation. So it was too much for me to go. Obviously, everybody thought that I did it on purpose to avoid deployment. I was like, whatever, I didn't. But okay, thanks. <laughs> like I was yelling, our God, <laughs> it had nothing to do with sex, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no, no. All right. So. So front lines, when we invade Iraq, we right. were the first chemical unit in Iraq. <clears throat> so, yeah. Was it disappointing at all to be out there and like, I, I wasn't out there. I have lots of friends who were and. And they've kind of expressed it was disappointing time after time. A lot of my friends on the front lines, but Marines, Army, mm -hmm. uh, Air Force, and it's time after time, hey, we're here for this specific cause, find mm -hmm. WMDs, and time after time, do a raid, like do a raid, do a sweep, and nothing, nothing's there. Nothing. No, we nothing. found the residue, nothing. but the problem is the residue, it, 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 it the sh basically the little shelf life of it, you can't tell if it's 20 minutes ago or 20 years ago. That, it's like walking evidence. into a new apartment you're about to rate and rent with a freaking black light. You right. have no idea when that happened, but yeah. it did. <laughs> exactly. So, no, I, I mean, it was amazing when I was there because in before deployment, what was interesting is I was still kind of fitting into that mold of who I should be. So I was a little, you know, just it was really evident there was this massive lack of confidence. So it was just the pleasing and the performance and the, you know, always making for the fact that I'm a girl. So there's two types of girls in the military, the ones who use their gender to their advantage to get out of doing shit. And then there's the other side, which are the ones who are overworking to prove that they're not at any sort of a gender disadvantage. <laughs> so I was in the latter. So I was always working hard, working hard. And then, you know, God forbid, like, when something happened, like the concussion, then it's the, well, I can't do anything right now. So I'm useless. <laughs> but I didn't really get along with people. I just wasn't super confident. And it was just always wearing that that mask and not in a con situation where I felt safe to really thrive. And when I deployed of all the things, like you would think, 
wait, you're in this place. It's not safe. You're under fire. You know, you're on these convoy rescue missions. Shit's going down. You know, it's it's crazy, you know, and it was the kind of pressure, right? Again, right, you and I, we work well under pressure. It was that kind of pressure that allowed me to really center in and and get clear with starting to build a relationship with me because there's that when it's downtime, it's downtime, right? You have a lot of alone, quiet time to think. It's the hurry up and wait. So, you, I mean, I'm contemplating life. I'm reading books that I've never read before, like deep, profound books. I mean, people are over here reading, you know, Tom Clancy and whatever. And I'm over here reading Simple Loving or, you know, the Solitary Practitioner, which is the Awaken book. But it's just expanding my awareness of other things. I'm doing all these personal development books and just relationship, just like leadership books that, that everybody's like, what are you, what are you reading now? And so I started getting to tap into me in the quiet time. Right. And what was cool is by the end of my tour, which was six months, I was showing up. I was shining in this state of confidence. Mind you, I also was day to day working with somebody who became my mentor and was really nurturing me to shine where all of the leaders that I had before that all had a problem with me because I was different, because I didn't fit the mold. I didn't play by the rules. I never play the politics. I don't do, I don't kiss people's ass, right? So I didn't play the the showman game. And so it was finding that right person who sees the diamond in the rough and starts to nurture that. And it, I got the chance to start to shine. And it was one of those situations where it was leading that convoy rescue mission. And, you know, the top leaders are having their briefing in their meeting. And I am in the lead vehicle. I am driving. So basically, I'm in control of everything that's happening, <laughs> at least from, you know, everybody's going to follow me on this this mission. And so I went and I met with every single person while they're meeting. Like, I'm building trust I'm listening to them. I'm being a transformational and empathetic leader and building trust and confidence in people who outrank me to basically be like, yep, shit hits the fan. This is what we're doing. That they, it was building trust in my leadership because basically at the end of the day, they're putting their life in my hands. And that's a hell of a responsibility to have to navigate. And I was in my 20s. And so, um, you know, I, I I think for a while it was a part of my story I was ignoring that I grew so much during that time. It was like basic training in AIT, everybody will tell you, like, you grow. Like, you massively grow during, especially basic training. But that's, basic training taught me how to have structure and, like, learn mindset. Because it was like, by the end of it, I'm running six miles singing cadence that I'd never done before. I'm like, oh my God, my body will do whatever I tell it to do, right? <laughs> like, this is amazing. So you learn confidence and structure there. That was one of those situations where I knew that's where I learned how to lead. And I was already doing it before that. Like at night, you know, you you at 18 doing the stuff that you were referring to, me at 19 getting promoted to manage out of Orem, Utah, <laughs> the the main copy max for the entire state I was hired in at 19 as their sales manager. And they recruited from a different store where I was just a supervisor. So they brought me in 
And so it's that same thing. So I had experience leading, but that's where I felt like I learned to lead Mm -hmm. for the first time, like really lead others, like, because this is life and death, you know? So it's funny to think about the trials and tribulations of business ownership and leading a team when it's like, but is anyone going to die? They might, they might. How did, and you don't have to answer this, but I'm going to ask it. How did how did you get hurt in Iraq? There was just on there was a multitude of different little things that kind of culminated into some injuries. So, you know, I don't generally get into all the details. You know, there's there's roadside bombs. There's you know the convoy ambushes. There's off roading. There's just military gear. There's a variety of different <laughs> injuries sustained. So that's fair. Yeah, I had surgery when I came back on my hip, you know, and I always I usually downplay that piece because it's not like. Not that it's a comparison game, but obviously we know people who've been injured. So but injuries, injury, I guess. Yeah. So when, when you got back from deployment and you're looking at like the rest of your life and you're you're probably not looking at the rest of your life like, hey. In X amount of time, I'm going to take my husband at the time into the freaking jungle and divorce his ass and then and then remarry him, right? Which we're going to get into at some point, Stacey. Oh, okay. I'm leaving that alone. <laughs> no, I'm excited for that. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> right? I forgot, I forgot about that. I'm excited for it. I just want to like lead all that. the way up to it. I don't want to miss right? things. No. But- so Jeff asked me to marry him before we before I left. And he got out of our unit. He was medically discharged for other stuff before our unit left. So he had to stay home while I deployed. But thankfully, he'd already deployed to like Albania, Kosovo, Bosnia, all that shit before. So he knew the experience. So even though he was at home, he was able to kind of coach me through the first couple of weeks when I was really struggling because it was the hurry up and wait. So you get there and then you're just sitting, you're waiting waiting to go, waiting to go, waiting to go. And it was like, that's when you have the big meltdown. And he's like, everybody goes through this. <laughs> but we weren't married yet. So there was one time we were in Talil Air Base and it was right after we took Talil Air Base, you know, we got word that there was Iraqi forces incoming. And so, you know, we basically took up defensive positions and we're just basically we're waiting to be attacked. And so I was just having that conversation with myself of like, okay, well, you know, what am I going to miss out on? I've had this amazing life. People are like, you should write a book already, you know, by like 25. And I'm like, no, the only thing I would really feel missing out on would be this experiencing this life with Jeff. So as soon as I got back, we got married. That's so fucking romantic, by the way. Well, we got we and we got married. It was very it was very rushed because my mom was having emergency surgery so I came back a few weeks before the rest of my unit. You're not helping. I'm playing this whole like Hollywood movie in my head. And it's like, my God, Stacy, look. At I know. So, so we, uh, no, I mean, we did. We got, we got married in the chapel, actually in the garden of the chapel in the hospital where my mom had surgery because she wasn't doing good and we didn't know if she'd make it. So we're like, well, let's just get married now. And so we had like a week to plan it. All right. So here's my question, which mm-hmm. I didn't forget. Thank okay. you very much. Thanks for all your fucking confidence in me. But I primed you. It was a challenge. You weren't gonna you weren't gonna forget out. No, no, you challenged me <laughs> and I will rise to the challenge. Exactly. <laughs> to be fair, I didn't send a message off about it, so I could have forgotten. Right. That's true. <laughs> Without a message to reference. No. You're just so a mirror there, man. <laughs> right. So there you and Jeff are. 
Okay. Romantic AF, you know, just no, not necessarily like Disney romance, just like the romance of the moment, right? Quick marriage, you're so in love and, and like all these things. And how do you go from that to let me divorce you in the jungle? Yes. How do you get to that? That's funny. So, well, 20, 22 years is definitely a, a long road. Keep in mind, when we got together, like, you know, it was the, that kind of that trauma bonding, you know, his his childhood and traumas and baggage and bullshit, very similar to mine. Have you ever and, seen the movie Speed, Keanu Reeves? Yeah. yeah. The very, was it Keanu Reeves and was that Sandra Bullock? Yeah. Right at the end when they're like, are we really in love or did we just go through some shit together? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's not just trauma bonding over the childhood stuff, too, but then it's also bonding because we're both in the military. Mm -hmm. So there's like that sense of identity, right? It's there's a lot of that mutual identity that creates codependency from all of that unhealthy stuff. So, yeah, we got together. Definitely codependent. But what's funny, again, going back to sort of that metaphysical side is the very first day I saw him in the class that I was in, the bio-warfare detection school, he wasn't even facing me. He was in the front of the room, facing the front. I'm in the opposite back corner. And like this weird tractor beam, I was like, who's that? I'm telling you, I'm playing a movie in my head. I'm seeing you in the back, the back of Jeff's head, Right. And there you are getting Twitter paid. And it's like, I just died in your arms tonight. Yeah. I've got yeah, a whole like, freaking movie. I'm, I'm going to make this out. So funny. So I'm like, who's that? And, and then he turned around. I was like, damn. But, but it was this really interesting, deep, energetic connection where I was like, I have to meet him. I have to talk to him. It was just, and and now, I mean, according to one of my spiritual advisors, you know, we've repeated cycles of relationship in different forms in different lifetimes. You know, it's we're gonna get in. We have the time. We're gonna get into that. Yeah, too. you know, I mean, that's a whole different story. <laughs> so, but when you have those deep connections, when you run into people in your lifetime, that you're like, you know, there's the fast friends. But then every now and then there's just somebody where you're like, there's that deep knowing. And he was, he's one of those people for me. And so it was just this instant, instant connection. And it's just been that way, you know, whether it was dysfunctional or functional. And, you know, that's most people who think they're high performers, all the people that I work with all the time, I'm like, you're just a really high functioning fucked up. You're not actually a high performer. <laughs> and so your, your unhealthy coping is just successful adaptations. And that's yeah, where we real, started. Real quick, like quick tangent. What is the difference between like high functioning versus high performer? So high functioning, and I always kind of go with my definition. Obviously, everybody can Google it. But figure you know, it out. Yeah, figure it out. I am empowering you to solve your own problem with fucking Google. <laughs> YouTube. There's all the YouTube people, the specialists now. You know, 
for me, the high functioning was my control issues, my perfection, my hustle, my ability to curate the version of myself that I presented to people to where I always looked like I had my shit together when inside I was really suffering because I was performing so well. And we see it all the time, right? All the people like Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade and Chris Cornell and, you know, all of these celebrity, big, amazing people doing impactful things in the world. Yet there's a disconnect between this external existence and who they really are in the inside because there's, again, those wounds that didn't get addressed. And all of that stuff outside is not going to fill that. And so there's a point where if we don't address it, right, like we have those moments where it catches up. And then obviously from when it catches up, how do you handle it? And I was just high functioning. <laughs> I looked like I had my shit together. You know, the the person who's on the stage getting graduating valedictorian while already starting to get the cracks in the marriage, you know, and we're only a couple years in. So does that answer your question? Yeah. No, I appreciate yeah. the context. Yeah, absolutely. Where high performance is, I always say it is you are unconditional. I am unconditional because there are zero external conditions that are going to fuck with my flow. I choose who I want to be and how I want to show up and how I present that to the world coming from so, within. Yeah, I mean, if we're if we're going to say always my choice and like I'm always in this state of zen and flow and we're talking Oh, I'm not always in a state of zen and flow. <laughs> but but I, I mean but primarily, but, yeah. but I guess what I want people listening or, or watching if they're on YouTube to realize is like, according to your definition, which I don't disagree with, by the way, 99% of everybody we view as successful, they're, they've got their shit together. They're, they're, they are high fucking functioning. That's it. They're not a high performer. The, the number of high performers in this world, it's like, I don't know. I'm not going to say one in a billion because that would mean eight. There's eight high performers on earth, but maybe one in a million. Yeah. It, it's definitely not as many. It's it's not like, oh, why is everybody else getting it and I'm not? They're not getting it. They're freaking eaten up and miserable inside. They can't sleep at night. They can't do all these things, but they're valedictorian or they're on top of the industry or they're this or they're that. They're, you know, this many zeros in their business annually in revenue. Yeah, you know, it's just high fun. Or they got, or they got the the house and the car or the whatever. Yeah, I think that's a cool distinction. So I don't mean to jump in the middle of the story. Continue the story. Where was I? <laughs> I just thought that was such a cool little tangent. No, those are good. You know, it's it's good to take those kind of diversions for a little bit because it adds context to the situation. And you so know, it, it really you're talking about you and Jeff. Trauma bonding on a bus that wasn't allowed to go underneath sixty miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, we had to we had to keep it above above forty or fifty or sixty or whatever. Whatever it was. <laughs> no, and that and that's what it was. It was you know it was really really good, and then but the cracks started showing quickly because obviously now that we didn't have the distractions of military. We didn't have the safety, the safety net of, you know, that type of comfort. Like, even though you don't get paid great, there's a lot of just, 
you, you left parents in a sense, even though I was on my own since 16, where like this is such a safety net that there's a lot of freedom to kind of not have to grow up. <laughs> Do you think it was also a safety net in that like sometimes you didn't have to face shit? And I'm not just saying this about the military. Oh, yeah. Like Everybody has their thing. It's like, I don't have to face shit, mm-hmm. but I don't have to admit it. All I have to do is make it to next Wednesday and like, I've got to be gone for two days or I've got to do this. And and it's my job's fault. It's the military's fault. It's the kid's fault. It's this fault. It's that fault. It's, it's whatever. So it it was like the scapegoat for a lot of problems you don't have to address. And maybe it's not the military for everybody. Everybody has their different things, but was it that for you? Maybe Um, a little bit as well or no? Well, I think it was just insulating, right? Where it's, you don't really... I was not taught to process my feelings or communicate them, right? And and like as another side note, I talk about this all the time with why do veterans, it's like 80, 85% of veterans have PTSD. We showed up fucked up. The military didn't do it. It's childhood trauma. So there's a specific demographic that tends to join the military, right? We're escaping poverty, addiction, alcoholism, abuse, instability, you know, all of that. So we're bringing all of that toxic dysfunction with us in these very unconventional and stressful situations. So then what we experience in the military, that's just icing on the cake. The military traumas were not the problem for me because I did a residential PTSD program and it only helped a little bit because it, it it dealt with the military shit, but it didn't deal with the root of why I had this unhealthy coping, why I was numbing out with alcohol, drugs, television, social media, food, work, self-harm. I had the eating disorder. You know, I mean, at my work, like I would physically hurt myself, you know, to just change how I was feeling in the moment because I didn't have a toolkit to process how intense it was, like what I was doing. So it was just something external to change a condition to change and distract me from how I was feeling. You know what's crazy about (laughs) self-harm? Like another, we don't have to spend a 20 minute tangent on this, but people don't even realize because like I've struggled with, with that. Mm-hmm. self-harm isn't always about like on my podcast we say what the fuck we want to say it's not always about taking a razor blade to your freaking thigh no right sometimes like for me it's punching shit that i know is going to hurt me to punch mm-hmm. i'm not punching a drywall i'm going to punch a freaking metal freezer i'm going to break my hand on purpose just because i can't handle how i'm feeling about this it's easier to feel about that i'm going to go ride my dirt bike off of something that i shouldn't be riding it off of because it's easier to feel about that than it is to feel what i'm feeling Mm-hmm. Or or whatever. Self-harm happens so many different ways. Like people people get it twisted and they're like, it's this. It's, it's this, just cutters. Yeah, it's just emo listening to Green Day or wh- what was the band? Hawthorne Heights. So cut my wrists and black my eyes. No, it will even, even like eating disorder and eating yeah. disorder is a form of self-harm. So for me, right. you know, or binge drinking, right? So I would binge eat and binge drink. I didn't have the capacity to make myself throw up, so my self-harm was chugging entire bottles of saline laxative. The I just ate all this shit, so now I'm gonna shit it out as quickly as I can. Like there's the it, that self-destructive behaviors shows up in a variety of ways, right? Self-harm can show up with reckless 
intersexual encounters, right? There's a variety. Self-harm can be, you know, drunk driving. Because it's like self, reckless, reckless be, behavior. Well, that's just reckless not behavior. Not knowing how you're going to pay the pay the bills and then staring at the wall all goddamn day. Right. Yeah. I like mean, that, self-harm, it is. you know it's killing you. Yeah. Putting yourself in those stressful situations to create a response that distracts you from the other stuff. It's yeah. anything to distract you, you know? So it is. And it contributes to a lot of the d- reckless behavior, for sure. You know, doing dumb shit. <laughs> so 22 years of marriage and like a lot of good times, but some bad times. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Time. Well, it was interesting because, you know, it, it's, I was wearing the mask for a while. Things are good, but it wasn't good. You know, when you have two people who come from such dysfunction, we don't know how to communicate. And you cannot be in a long-term committed relationship with somebody with an inability to communicate and expect fulfillment and intimacy and connection. It's not possible. So it was really challenging right away. And on top of it is as the fewer and fewer distractions we had, AKA settling into adulthood, the worse it got. Because now it's, what do I do to fill this extra time? I'm not distracted by all the extra studying of school. Now I have a corporate job, doing the safe job with the benefits and all of that. And then it's the, let's buy the house, the dog, you know, the cars, the timeshares, the vacations, all the stuff the retail therapy to fill the void as we start making better and better and better money, but nothing's filling the void. So I'm just stuffing it. I'm stuffing it with alcohol, stuffing it with drugs, stuffing it with food mainly. Funny thing was I didn't get put on medication till I quit smoking weed. (laughs) That's when I got put on all the crazy meds. And that's when my health started really taking a decline because it's the consistency of the the monotony of the day-to-day. There's nothing to distract you anymore from this darkness, this compartmentalized crap that we've been ignoring, this shadow side that isn't bad. We've just made it that way. We judged it. We compartmentalized it. We pushed it away. We said, nope, nope, not going to go there. But that's the part of ourselves that truly fuels your power, your purpose, and your potential from all the shit you can't have the magic of the light that you are without that shadow my capacity for empathy and intellect and engaging with people and and just emotion and joy and fulfillment is only as great as it is because of the intensity and the depths of the darkness and the and pain i've experienced and so i'm grateful for that but i wasn't then So I just numbed, numbed, numbed. So I worked more, drank more, ate more till I was twice what I weigh now. And that was like a 10 year downward spiral. And I mean, it was 10 years from getting out of the military to my rock bottom moment. And it was compounding with medical issues because what a lot of people don't tell you is PTSD is an interesting place to be because you're constantly in this elevated stress state so it's activating everything so it expresses like things like autoimmune disease fibromyalgia (laughs) so i had the lupus diagnosis i had the fibromyalgia i had arthritis in my back from the war injuries i had surgery on my hip from the war injuries 
You know, I have just all of these different things. So now I'm on medications to counteract the side effects of other medications. My marriage is just slowly declining. You know, we're both working and working and working more to avoid the problem that we don't know how to communicate because we're projecting onto the other person, blaming them when really it's 100% what we're bringing to the table and how we're showing up. And, and that's the challenge with intimate relationships. It's easy because your partner's your mirror. If they're doing something that's frustrating you, it is because that is exactly what you're frustrated with yourself about. They are just reflecting your shit back to you. And that is a tough pill for people to swallow if they've not done the work to be ready to own that. And obviously we were not. Our, our emotional intelligence was very low in some capacity and very high in others. Right? The gift of childhood trauma is you can have a really high EQ in certain ways, but we lacked in the EQ of things like communicate. So, you know, you compound this 10-year pathway to destruction, and it wasn't all bad, but I think a lot of it was just playing out these cycles of what can we do to distract ourselves? What can we do to numb out? You know, we had great vacations. We made good money. We bought good things. We had the experiences. There was a lot of fun and crazy shit that we did. And a lot of it was just masking the pain. You know, using the other person to mask the pain of avoiding the truth of who we are. And that's when I had my rock bottom moment. I mean, and at the end of 2014, and this was after doing a residential PTSD program I did at the in the beginning, very beginning of 2014. Mm-hmm. So we go two months residential, do the work to address the shit, but it's all the military stuff. Then I get out and I'm like, well, why am I still struggling? Because they didn't help me address the root, which is all the childhood shit, the root programming of why I am responding to life the way that I'm responding. And that's the thing. So I've been so focused on understanding trauma and that how that impacts our decision-making, our health, our relationships, all of that stuff. And it's been so insightful because I'm like, well, why can somebody, one person at a mass shooting have PTSD and the other person doesn't, right? Hurricane Katrina, whatever. What makes one person have PTSD and the other person not? 100% their childhood emotional programming, their coping skills. That's it. That's it. And that was not what they helped. They helped with superficial coping skills and then processing military trauma, but not to really reprogramming this root stuff. And so constantly staying in this stress response all the time, you know, was just this progressive losing my shit. You can only keep the mask on for so long before, you know, your slip is showing me. And that's what it was. And so I'm, I'm the weight on my body was just one of those symptoms of this cycle of, oh, look, she's really just high functioning and not that well because it's obvious she's kind of a shit show. Well, it's really like it's a reflection. It's a it's a tangible physical evidence of the weight on your freaking soul. Yeah. And that's what it was. People are always like, oh my God, you know, the before and after photos. I'm like, yeah, that legitimately was the physical manifestation of the emotional and spiritual burden I was carrying. This constant rejection of my truth to wear the mask of who I should be and play the role. So the American dream was my prison. 
the house, the cars, the corporate safe job, the husband, the dog, the whole thing, not the people in it, but just the way I built it was ignoring me until my body could not handle it anymore. So by the end of 2014, my health is falling apart. I'm on all the meds. I weigh a lot, <laughs> twice what I do now, <laughs> you know. I mean, Jeff and I get into this big fight and he storms off. And this is this week, this extra emotional and difficult week between Christmas and New Year's. And I just go right into the kitchen. I'm just grabbing the food from the cabinet, shoving the food in my face, like from the cabinet to my face. And I'm chasing it with a bottle of booze, bawling my eyes out. And for the first time in a long time, I was like, what the hell am I doing? Obviously something I'm not stop to ask myself in a minute. And I received the answer. This little voice pops in and is like, honey, you are just trying to make yourself look as ugly on the outside as you feel on the inside because you hate yourself. And that was a whole lot to swallow in that moment. And the follow-up was, yeah, and you made this. Your choices. So needless to say, that's when I was like, there's no reason for me to be here anymore. I'm done. No reason. And I laugh now because I was so type A. The control issues were so bad. And that was a big undermining of the relationship with Jeff, too, was just all these control issues. The walls were up. I was rejecting the love that I wanted so bad. I was the block to that. So the funny thing is, I passed out before my plan was perfect. So obviously I'm still here. <laughs> that's how that's how type A I was. The plan was not perfect. The people pleaser, even in my my end, that it must be this this perfect experience. And you know, that's the the gift in the whole thing is immediately I woke up the next day and I was like, what? Whoa, that is a whole lot of reality and ownership to swallow in a moment. And my response to it in my sober next day was, all right, I'm done. I am officially done trying to control anything other than myself. It flipped a switch. And that has been the game changer to why I do what I do. The stuff that I talk about, specifically focusing on boundaries and control, because everything for people like us, comes down to boundaries and control. But it doesn't always have to be diving into the deep end of the bullshit. It can be just focusing on the behavior and really creating massive change without having to retell the story. Most people think they always have to retell the story to heal, and you don't. So now we create a new challenge. When two dysfunctional codependent people live together, they generally get along because misery loves company and they numb out in the same ways. So I have this great awakening. I start making changes. That creates a whole new problem in our relationship because now I am living in a completely different way. In a very short time, in the beginning of 2014 or 2015, I, I start losing all the weight because I'm focused on getting healthy. And the big magical thing about flipping the switch on trying to no longer trying to control anything but yourself and actually making the changes is it was like 
it was a light switch in every way where I had this massive epiphany of like, okay, yes, I want to change everything. I want to change my career because obviously I lost it. I want to change and save my marriage. I want to tra- transform my relationship with my son, with my mother, with my dad, you know, all of these people, regardless of our pasts. I want to change my body, right? I know there's this real version of me hidden in there locked away. So what of all of this stuff, not to go into analysis paralysis or goal overwhelm, I just was like, what's the one thing that I have control over that I can do now? What is the easiest, simplest thing? And it was just what I put in my body. And I started so simple. One change, one thing to focus on, and that was it. And it was this beautiful cascade because I started learning the skills of boundaries, started learning to build this relationship with myself, communicate with myself, which made it easier to communicate with people like Jeff, you know, my husband. And But it created a lot of friction and discomfort because I did not have a coach. I did not have a support system. Thank God for my trauma therapist. But, you know, I'm literally like on this island all by myself because I'm the only one making healthy changes for a future that I want. That's anywhere in my life that I'm just barreling through very clumsily, might you, because like a lot of people, I was still very all or nothing. So the idea of boundaries was like, nope, I am doing me stuff and that's it. And just not doing anything with anybody else. Like that's the only thing I could have was just the, the wall in a different way. Because what most people don't realize is when you don't have boundaries, You have to create internal safety in some form or another. And that's what boundaries do. But when you don't have them, we learn walls. And the biggest wall we have is control. So it's the perfection, procrastination, expectation, judgment, hustle, attachment, giving. Giving when you're not open to receive is a control issue because you're not letting others give to you. So we have the walls and we become the big cock blocker to everything that we want. So I just went from walls one way to walls another way. So that started creating a different. We we were doing more together and I was healthier and I was happier. But now it's when you start changing, it's forcing somebody around you to change. And I hear this from entrepreneurs all the time because now their lifestyle is different. They don't have the structure. They don't have the the stuff that they were anchoring onto before that was that consistency. And being a business owner requires you to grow. So not surprisingly, when you lose over 100 pounds, people notice. (laughs) Some people start asking me like, hey, what are you doing? Teach me how to do it. So I got certified as a coach to start helping people do what I did. Because I was like, well, I didn't have any help. I can help others. And it just, it launched this passion and this career. And at the same time, I immediately went back into the old habits like I did when I was in school. So instead of studying all the time, now I'm working all the time. So I really wasn't that much further along in the journey, right? It was just the cycles. This is why we go through these cycles. And so until I was willing to kind of address that, which I was talking about earlier, when I finally hired my first coach, you know, three years in, like, okay, I need to stop getting in my way. But I was still struggling at home and it it took, you know, I was a high functioning addict and alcoholic. Jeff's been a high functioning alcoholic and navigating that level of dysfunction is just been a challenge. And, you know, over the decades, 
it eventually catches up. And the faster and further I grow and move forward, and he doesn't, the bigger the gap is between us. And again, I see this a lot with entrepreneurs, is one's into the growth mindset, one isn't. And between a lot of promises, a lot of inaction, and honestly, just a pace that was really not keeping up. You know, I'm very active in my growth and personal development, and Jeff wasn't. And after three years of being in Florida, after the big condition that was supposed to change, there was still a lot of challenge. And that was after we started working together, which was the best thing that ever happened in our marriage, was hiring him at the end of 21 to come into the second company. It forced us to start having to do the things that we kept putting off for 20 years, like have boundaries and learn how to fucking communicate. It forced it. And it forced us to see and really own what wasn't working. And so before we hit our 20th anniversary, the idea was we should have, and Jeff's, this was Jeff's idea, was we should have a vow renewal ceremony on the beach somewhere and, you know, like a recommitment at our 20th. Well, that was in May of 23. So by the end of 22, you know, we're just like, this is that we're at a make or break place. And I was at a level of ownership with where I was at. And I believe he, he was too, because like he felt it. It wasn't like this is just happening and he's clueless. He's he's fully aware. He's super emotional and sensitive, high empathy person. And he's a cancer. I'm a Virgo. So high achiever meets emotional mess. And he's he was in that space too. It's like something massive has to change. And so we decided after our event back in January that we were going to go to Mexico for 15 days. We were going to go off grid. And we're basically going to get clear on what we're doing. And we were not attached to the outcome. Like if we came to the resolution, it was time for us to end it. We were okay with respecting that decision for the sanctity of moving forward. It would be hard. I mean, we'd go through the grieving and the breakup and the whatever, but like I respected myself and my vision and my future enough and his that if this is not working, if we are both better off not together anymore, then that's that's what we need to do. So we went into we went into Cancun and then we drove through Playa del Carmen into Tulum and we were in the jungle in Tulum off grid, like way out in the jungle for the first week. And probably to no surprise, we're having the same conversation. I don't know about you, right? How many times you hear, you've, if you've been in a relationship with somebody for a long time, parents, kids, you know, significant other, how many times are you going through the same argument, the same conversation, which is just, Circles and circles and circles, never really getting to the root. Now, the biggest frustration I had in the last three years with Jeff was I always felt like I was battling against a 15-year-old version of me. It was like, I feel like I'm defending against this old me, which was not a great person at all, and not getting to be in relationship with somebody who sees me for who I am today. 
right? We don't necessarily evolve and grow our relationships at the same pace as we do ourselves. And that was what we we realized. So we're going through these cycles of talking, spinning in circles, all the stuff, back and forth. We're not getting anywhere. And we're very aware. We're angry. We're upset. We're elevated. This is not going anywhere. This is so stupid. And at the time, I started reading the book from one of my mentors, Amelia Antonetti. It's called Designing Genius. And it's not that the concept is new, that your relationship is the third entity, but it was the message coming in at the right time, as they always do, all divine intervention, right? It's the right lesson at the right time that I was ready to receive, that Jeff and I are both entities in the relationship, growing, evolving, serving the relationship, you know, together. But the relationship, the we part of it, is a third entity that gets created by the baggage, the bullshit, the beauty that we bring to the relationship and engage in it. And that relationship becomes deeper and more interesting the longer you're together, but also can be slower to evolve. And once we took all of this baggage and this bullshit that was the relationship, because we've never had a problem, him and I, like as people, as beings in this deep spiritual connection and this loyalty and commitment to each other. Like if you remove all the bullshit, like we're amazing. It's the rest of it. It's the stuff we brought to it. Once I moved it to its rightful place in the triad, I said, Jeff, here's the problem. You're not the problem. I'm not the problem. It's all the baggage and bullshit that we brought to the relationship that we've put into the relationship, but it's the relationship that's the problem. So rather than doing what our parents would say is go to counseling, do the work, work on it, you know, make a girl. I'm like, why do we want to fix something that's fucked up from 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Why do that? So my vote is let's just burn it to the ground and start up. He's like, I'm down for that. I'm like, really? Like, are we committing to this is a boop, hit the reset button, just say fuck it, and then start over fresh. This is not something everybody can do. We were both committed to this process. Like, you can't do it if you're not both committed to the process. But we said, okay, we're done. Reset. Instantly, all the baggage and bullshit was gone. And we got to sit down with new clarity, new commitment, and new energy, and actually crafted new rules of engagement our relationship based on who we are today so what what was burning it down like because like you wrote or you read the wiccan books you did all the things was this like dancing naked on a beach at midnight around a bonfire chicken bones and blood and you know chanting in latin or or what what was burning it down literally just the agreement to just let it go like an like an energetic divorce, like a exorcism. But so like, what, there was nothing you ceremonial that, about it. Yeah, there was like uh, a, oddly as much as I do my ceremonial stuff, and like there was nothing is that ceremonial. Like not bringing it up anymore. Like next time I no. make that meal, you haven't liked for fifteen years. Don't fucking say you don't like it. You you freaking try it. You try. No, because that's habit stuff. Like, that's different. Okay, that's different than actually letting go of the past. Letting go of, because you got to think about it, when when your relationship, this third entity is there, we have an emotional attachment, a sense of identity to the relationship itself. Like this is a deep disconnect to the relationship. You know, it is, it is a lot of the 
It's the things that you do to work on the relationship. It's the communication. It's the commitment. It's the presence. So it's also the baggage. So it's like letting go of the baggage and, and the resentment. When you burn it down, you let it go. Like, hey, we are energetically divorced. We're done. We're done. Light switch. Boom. Yeah. Did you take a moment to like live in that or was it like, okay, let's get remarried Mm -hmm. right now? Or was it like, let's take a moment in this and, and actually feel the weight of like, I am no longer in this relationship. Yeah. No, we we did. We could go get the paperwork done, but, but it's over. Right. We did. It was, you know, that, that night that we made that agreement, I think was like this interesting sense of freedom in removing the pressure that we'd created. Cause again, you know, you think about it, it's, all that childhood trauma we both have, a lot of it got projected into the relationship. So that the relationship became the dumping ground. So it was actually easier to let go than I think people allow it to be. Mm-hmm. You can let go of the anger and the resentment if you want to. It's not as hard as people make it out to be, especially when you're in ownership of your role in creating it. That's the pill people refuse to swallow. Right. You know, and obviously there's things that happen to us like as kids and stuff like that. We don't have a role in it other than existing, but it's still, you know, why am I going to create this internal cancer of holding on to, you know, all this other shit? And I'd already done that work. I'd done the work to let go of my expectation of my parents being anyone other than who they are. Right. Like that's healing. To just say, I love you for who you are and don't expect you to be different and just okay with that. Like I let go of that. That was the most painful thing for me was not the childhood trauma or the shit I was holding on to from that. It was the constantly engaging in a relationship, expecting them to be someone else. That was my addiction to suffering. That is what most people are addicted to is suffering. And most of it is around expecting people to be someone other than who they are because they are always changing themselves to match who they think they should be the other people so that that night and then did y'all get remarried the next day no we started rebuilding no 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 we started rebuilding once we moved to bacalar we went to well shulha is right outside bacalar lagoon very amazing magical waters definitely but that that second week we were there we focused on the rebuilding and it was the rebuilding these new rules of engagement. Like, what is important to you as an individual? What is important to me as an individual? And how do we bring this together in a way where we both are respecting our boundaries, something we never had before? And, you know, how do we in- meet each other's needs in a healthy way and, and, and craft a vision of where we're going and what we're doing? This was all new. We'd never done this. So before you got there, though, you had that like period, like you were done and you had that really surreal moment you talked about like that night. And then you had you had a period of time, some days and and everything in between where it was like like you're you're living with the weight of it. Right. What was like the most significant realization maybe you had in that period in between? What was the most significant thing that because like you talk about the freedom but obviously it wasn't like you're like, I'm free. Let me abscond to freaking, you know, Bolivia now and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, shack it- up or whatever. Like you were, you were still there. You were, you were there in that place, in that moment, present, yeah. somewhat with each other still. It's mm-hmm. so like, what, what was significant about it? 
what was interesting was how easy it was to let go of the baggage and the bullshit. The I, instantly feeling free was a choice. Keeping that out, we were feeding the wall. The reason we felt such a, a disconnect, the reason we were struggling, struggling with like a deep emotional, intimate connection was because we were putting all this shit in between us in the what relationship. made it so easy? Like what was the viscosity there? What what made it such an easy, just like lubricated that shit out? You know what I'm saying? Just like, whoop, yeah. there it goes. There it goes. Yeah. So easy. Cause everybody I mean, sitting here thinking like, my God, there's no was, way it's that easy. Like, no. Yeah. Why was it easy? How was it easy? You know, it, it is it is funny. I do. I appreciate this line of questioning because I, I don't think I've even really dove into putting the language around the experience of why was it so simple and easy and instantaneous to, to just let it go. And I think it was because once I moved this baggage to its appropriate place, to the relationship, this third entity, there was a realization that this is not a this is not an identity problem. See, this is the challenge I see with too many people is they make their pain, their suffering, their trauma, their story, their identity, so they can't let it go. As soon as we moved it to its appropriate location, it was like, wait, this is this external arm off of me. I'm in the middle of my identity. It's me. There's this arm that's like veteran, you know, trauma entrepreneur, speaker, author, right? Wife, mother, you know, whatever. And that was just one of those things. It was like our relationship it was just this arm. So you can just go boop and just cut it off and let it go. Because I removed it from the sense of identity. I was holding on to it like a badge of honor. I mean, think about it, this addiction to suffering, right? We wear that suffer, struggle, sacrifice as a badge of honor. It's who we are. And when you move it to its appropriate place of like, oh, wait, this is, this is, the, I have a choice. I have a choice. I can control whether or not I hold on to this shit. And I'd already built some muscles, mind you, over the last, you know, from the rock bottom moment to the beginning of 23 when we did this. I built some muscles on processing emotions and letting things yeah, go and using way. those skills. You know, yeah, I can lift that weight. And Jeff not did not necessarily build the muscle as efficiently. Dabbled here and there in a couple of things. But there was just such a relief when it's not a part of your identity. And I think that's where so many people struggle. Because again, if you come from childhood trauma, if you come from adversity, we in and especially those who lack strong boundaries, our sense of identity is skewed. Our sense of identity is off of those things. Do people like me? Do my parents love me? You know, do I get the approval of my partner, right? We're chasing those validation things to have that sense of enoughness when our own identity is unclear. So well, part of my identity was that relationship. And once I moved it, it was easy. So there you are, like you've shed, you've shed that and it's come off you're you're sitting there and i'm just imagining imagining you like camping out on the beach in the amazon is what i'm imagining <laughs> kind of there you are in the dark by yourself right i'm going to say some things i want you to finish the sentence we're going to go through an exercise here stacy <laughs> okay coach carson and, and i want you to just like fill in the blank with like 
what was it going through your head in, in that at that time? Like that night, if you can, right? I'm not a bad person for contributing to this. What I want for myself is peace, love, fulfillment. Peace, love, and fulfillment look like being in integrity with me. What the fuck does that mean, Stacey? <laughs> well, the consummate people pleaser and wearing the mask of who I should be was always playing the roles. Not being in integrity with me. Disrespecting my own boundaries for others. So no longer sacrificing my needs or my well-being or my identity or my service to others or my service to self for something external. It's about being with someone who's a compliment, not a condition. I like that. I like to say compliment, not a complication, but it's the same thing. Yeah. A condition and a complication are the same damn thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Being unconditional. So you guys moved to this other place on, on your vacation. Yeah. Deeper into the Yucatan Peninsula. <laughs> Deeper into the Yucatan Peninsula. I feel like I'm narrating George of the Jungle here for those that remember George of the Jungle. Right. So, so, you know, you had that space in between, but now you're starting to put some pieces back together. How did that conversation even start? Like, was it like a, Hey, Jeff, you know, been thinking and I still want to be with you, dude. Let's, or, or like, how did it even start? How did it, what, what was the catalyst that started that conversation? And then where did it go from there? Well, in even engaging in the process was the, okay. I, you know, basically literally came to just straightforward. Do you want to be together? Yes or no. Okay. So, but we're both in, but obviously we know something needs to change. So I was like, well, why don't we just burn it down? Like, we just let it go, like hit the reset button. Just, oop, here you go. Now that we have this new information and. So burning it down was like, hey, we're still going to be together regardless, but we may or may no. not be married through it. Yeah, no, no. It was more of a, the, the, because obviously it, I don't want to say conditions, but you know, we need limits and boundaries. So the limits and boundaries were, we're going to look at building a new framework together. And we were just committed to the process. You know, it was, are we both in agreement? We're letting it go. We're both in agreement. We want to be better. We both are in agreement. And this is just all these agreements we went through. And it's like, okay, well, let's just be. And then, you know, are we both committed to to building something new and seeing what can come out of that without expectations and attachments? That was the biggest thing. So it was still even by the end of it, if we were not in agreement with the process, but we were both so soul committed to the process, like it just was, of course, of course, we're doing this together, but it was from a much healthier, happier place. And we're doing things that we've never done before. So we're already doing different things. It was very, it was, it was, it was really easy. Mind you, you know, we're in this bubble of going off grid. And sometimes you need that bubble of being in a different, a different condition to bring out the shit you've been conditioning at home to avoid, you know? So by all the extremes that we had, being out in <laughs> some of these unusual and challenging places that, you know, would probably be a whole other episode. Um, it it added to this 
ability to take this intensity because we both brought it up. I mean, that's what added to being able to let it go is we both were in full like expression of our all our baggage and all our shit and all our anger and resentment and hurt and all of it was coming to the surface. All of it. So it made it, I think, because we're in this unique environment, easier to let it go because we were in it. We had access to it. Yeah. So as we let it go, it was just being willing to not put any pressure on it for the first few days. And oh, my God, all of a sudden the sex is amazing. (laughs) The reality of it, when you remove the baggage, it's like, oh, my God, right when you're first dating. So instantly you're like, okay. We're back to this is I'm the so reason to you, and I'm not talking, and I'm not thinking about that bullshit that we were arguing about that didn't yeah. even fucking matter. Yeah, yeah, it's it's your ability to be present because that's such it, why it adds to the wall is we're distracted by all this crap. I love that. Like, there's, I it wasn't as an, it wasn't intentional at all. It was almost on accident. But like in 2020, I remember my wife and I were going through some shit and. And we went through some shit through 2020, 2021, and, and it was kind of a defining moment for us. And, and we've come out the other side, but like, obviously we have work to do. Everybody always has work to do and, and whatever. But I remember she really wanted to take our boys to, I think, Disneyland. And I hate Disneyland with a freaking passion. I hate it so bad that I will literally, rather than the cost of me going, I will pay for all of her friends and all of her family to go with her and they can all go. And, and I'll plan like a work trip around the same time so I can be productive or whatever. But this time I decided not to plan a work trip. I decided, like I literally, I put my fishing pole and tackle box in the back of my truck, which I don't fish much, but, but you know, threw that in the back, threw my guns in the back and uh, a sleeping bag and just a, just a few things like a, a cooler stopped off at the, the grocery store, grabbed a few things. And then for like four days, I literally slept in the bed of my truck and I was all over Southern Utah, central Nevada, just all over, just hitting lake after lake. And like, I literally just went hunting and fishing. I didn't, I turned my phone off. I didn't talk to a single person. I didn't like, it was an isolation though that I needed. We had so much tension in our marriage right then. And, and like when she got back. There was this long road. It it took months. It it took a year, honestly. Mm-hmm. It was a year long road. It was a twelve month long road. But that was kind of a, the catalyst to like starting to go down that road. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't gonna have those conversations with myself if I was sitting there watching the same bullshit Netflix, yeah. laying around on fucking YouTube, taking the work calls, distracting myself with this, doing that, hanging out with friends. I needed the isolation of just being alone and silent. It was me and a light breeze and the lake or me and a light breeze and the pine trees or, or whatever to get me to be able to have those conversations with myself so that I could have them with her. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that, that we did. I'm grateful I have a bad attitude about Disneyland. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's the thing is it's funny because, you know, his sanctuary in that quiet space that zen that presence is fishing and being out on the boat out on the water you know that kind of stuff or being at the beach and mine there's a variety of things i like to do as well with that quiet time that alone time it could be the art the painting you know also hiking or being at the beach or out on the water and so 
we had those times and those skills for that self-reflection or that presence, being able to bring that into this situation where it's like, look, we're great when we're together, when we're actively, consciously choosing to engage in this relationship, not be on self-soothing autopilot. Because both of us have our unhealthy, dysfunctional defaults. And I just had reached a point where I'd raised my floor so much, right? My lowest standard where he and I were no longer in alignment where we could engage in a relationship. It's not his fault. It's not my fault. It's not right, wrong, good, or bad. It's just we're at different places and different paces. And so it was committing. And and it's been almost a year since we got back and we're in that reevaluation process of, okay, some shit went down, middle of the year, some old habits have flared up. You know, I gave you your space to grieve, to cope, to process. You know, again, he's a slower processor than I am. Now it's a look, it's only been a year. Let's do this conscious recalibration of addressing the things that still are creeping in that are not working, but at least we're in a place of commitment and communication. And that's been the biggest thing. We've had more ease in our relationship. It's not perfect, you know? It's We are all still called to go to our roots, you know, default coping. It requires conscious effort to change that. And so, you know, it, it is gonna be more intention and more focus in the new year. And I have my minimum standard. If at any point there's not the effort being made or the consistency being made, then I know what my, for me to stay in integrity with myself, then we have to go our separate ways. But it's very different being in a relationship with somebody that you want to be in a relationship versus somebody you need because they're filling that that inner worthiness wound. Like I'm not I'm not with him because of that anymore. That's the energy shift that we went through by releasing the old relationship and that baggage was this commitment to each other from that dysfunctional place. And there's a certain point where I mean I've brought it up with him numerous times. I'm like there's a wall internally with you with your shit that you've not dealt with yet that does get in the way of our relationship. And I'm like at some point soon you know, it's going to require some radical work, which, you know, there's so much great work with plant medicine for deep trauma recovery and healing as a, as a great catalyst to the process. You know, I've done some of that myself. I'm an advocate for that for those who struggle. And he's, I feel like he's got more childhood trauma than me, but then, you know, it's not a comparison thing. <laughs> so Competition. You know, it's no. competition. I'm like, you're way more fucked up than me. I struggle so much with the plant medicine. I like I do. It's I don't feel like it's for me, man. A lot of that's because I've played with with some of that, and it's I've never had. I have not had a single good experience, and I make good money. I can buy the best shit out there. Trust me, and, and the best guides and the best. I've not had a single quality experience, but I know a lot of people that like it's changed their life, and it's it's inherently better, but. I know a lot of people that have spent the last 10 years fucking fighting themselves. And I find that pathetic. <laughs> like right. you're finding yourself great. And that's, it's outwardly fucking pathetic 10 years later. Like we're always finding ourselves 10 years later, we're still going to be finding ourselves. but to be in the same place of finding myself 10 years later, eh, looks like mama raised a little bitch is what it looked like. Little, little stoner bitch. 
Yeah, it's, like, it's, I mean, I'm, I I don't do that any constant stuff. Like, I'm very clean now. Like, really yeah, clean. And I didn't mean to infer that. I no, no, no. Uh, Like, I used to. Like, that was part of, like, where Jeff and I, I mean, there was a year we were, like, rolling every weekend, <laughs> which was great, actually, for our conversations and the intimacy in our relationship. But there's a point where it's like, hey, I need you sober to be able to do this. Yeah, not f- I, not on I just something. struggle with. I don't know where I'm at with it because I've I've seen so much good out of it. Mm-hmm. I personally don't get it, it. I wouldn't say it's detrimental. Like I haven't done it in years and years and years. Done anything in years and years because it's just it's shit for me. It's it's uh, always bad experiences. I've seen a lot of good from it. I've also seen yeah. a lot of really bad from it. So I'm yeah. like I'm not sure where where to well, land on. Then. Partying was one phase, right? There was that phase. But doing it in this constructive way with the shamans and the trauma therapists and the psychiatric people who are professionals utilizing plant medicine for therapeutic purposes in very specific conditions to get an intentional outcome and and curate an experience for healing is very different from my party days, you know? And I definitely, it's like all things, you know, no diet is for everyone. No, no healing journey is for everyone. And I see too many people use it as a crutch. You know, I see the, the workshop junkies, everybody going to every event. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, they're just consumers. Every event. Nobody's implementing. It's not necessarily like the, the party phase. It's more like, it's full on plant medicine, shaman, like the whole nine yards. But then it's like, hey, let's disassociate from society because that's the fucking answer and go join the commune. And, and, oh, yeah, no. And it's like, I feel like that is equally destructive. It's just, it's a, you're, you're moving the pro, it's the same problem in a different place. Right. No, I, I totally agree. And like, that, that's, uh, I guess, what I'm saying. Like, there's a huge distinction between plant medicine and party face. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or or the people that again you you take it too far and you know you're seeing them yeah. doing it all the time to where that becomes a crutch to doing work in the day to day because that's not your normal state. And and that's where it's anytime we're utilizing something to change our state, right? It's it's are you doing something constructive to change your state? But are you in control of that? Because it's great. You can choose to take the medicine, but it's like then it's going to turn into just drug use if you're excessive, you know. Obviously, that's just my opinion. That is not a medical opinion by any means. But I feel like if I'm doing it too much now, I'm using this one experience. I'm using that rather than a tool that I can implement in the moment to address and just consistently recalibrate to where I can move forward. Like it's when I'm choosing to do deep work to open things up that I've not accessed, but I've only done the plant medicine twice ever. That's it so far, you know, well, that's not sure twice in big ceremony. And then I had a little bit of like residual smaller experiences post big ceremony is like follow up, but like nothing major. So like that experience I had, like just being out and, and it's what I've been thinking, honestly, for months, I need to do that again. And now it's like 13 degrees below and we've, we've had nonstop snow for days. And I'm like, well, it's not the right time of year to go do that. Sleep in the back of the truck. But I felt like for months, probably six, eight months, I need to do that again. Right. And like, I feel like for me, that isolation was as constructive to that 
thought process as like a plant medicine might be. It is. No, I, I completely agree with you. That's another therapeutic tool that people don't implement enough to reset themselves. So one of those agreements Jeff and I made during our rebuilding week after our burn it down moment was without an, it is a non-negotiable that we do a non-work trip once a quarter. We needed to travel together to just be non-work, connect, to be in the freedom, the intimacy, the fun, the flow. And then I've added in time that I know I need that alone time. And it could even just be a staycation where you just go not far away, but you're yeah. just in a different a environment. In town and just Yeah, just a, a different environment. Book. Be quiet. Have just peace. I mean, I loved it when he would go on trips and I'm here at the house all by myself for like three, four, five days. I'm like, this is awesome. And I need my alone time to just be. Yeah, my wife has always said that. She's like, I don't mind when you go on trips. I get... <laughs> All the time, it's better now than obviously like when we had babies because she wasn't alone and she was alone. I mean, she was alone to do everything all by herself. But now that, you know, they're at school and then they're at jujitsu and they're at this, she's like, hey, just get that that moment of peace. And Which is funny because I travel for work so much less now, so much less now. I was, when, when our boys were babies, I was gone at least a week a month, sometimes two weeks a month. I mean, you were doing that even when I met you. Oh my gosh. You were, so, yeah, I mean, we were traveling a lot. Like I stopped so much of that travel. Yeah, I have. I haven't, yeah, just the, this last 18 months, I haven't traveled for crap. Mm, so. Yeah, it's it, like I go through phases, you know, it was like the end of September through the end of October, I had like a back-to-back, like one trip every single week for like five weeks or four weeks or something. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. But that was it for almost the entire year. So what's next for for you? Like obviously a couple of weeks here we'll be hanging out in Scottsdale right. and and whatever. But no, just in general, what's you've what's been next? on this big, beautiful journey mm-hmm. for since twenty fourteen. Really my whole life, right? <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all part this of this lifetime. Oh my God. You know what? Let's get into that. Like, okay. not that I don't care about what's next, Stacy, but, but I'm looking at <laughs> You're like, wait, I forgot like, I was going to ask you about the previous we've lifetime. Got 45 minutes, and oh my God, we could spend three hours on this alternate oh. and other lives, previous yes. lives and future lives. My God, talk to me about this because it's, it is such an interesting topic. Right. I know. And obviously, everybody has a different belief system about it. For me, it's just been a knowing. A lot of those things. I was very connected to spirit, source, God, whatever you want to call that. As a kid, I was wide open. You know, I could see the angels and the auras and have conversations with spirits and all the stuff when I was a kid. And instantly, when ego kicked in at the age of six, that door closed. It was really interesting. But yeah, so so for me, it was just kind of like, of course. You know, I've done past life regression. And then when I started working with a spiritual advisor at the end of 21, or I'm sorry, end of 22. So this was part of the catalyst that built up to doing this work with Jeff in the jungle. (laughs) Jeff in the jungle. We were having some of this friction. And what was interesting is I was like, okay, outside of the work that I know we can do in this sort of 3D world, like in our relationship, what is this other stuff? And I was working with my spiritual advisor and she's like, 
we d- we're doing some work and she's like, okay, here's the challenge is this is from a previous life. So in some schools of thought, we tend to have these energetic cords, these spiritual cords with certain people where repeatedly life after life, you tend to find these people again and again. And Jeff and I are those people. And in this past lifetime, I was the man, he was the woman. And ultimately it was this painful story. And in it, there was a consequence of the person I was engaged to when I broke it off with her, she ended up killing herself. And basically that person committed to consistently causing me trouble. So, you know, it's that negative energetic attachment. And so went through the process of clearing that out. And actually that helped immensely in our relationship because we brought some of that stuff into this lifetime when we found each other. So attachment, like are you talking attachment in the same sense as like, you know, when you're talking to whether it's ghost hunters or or demon Mm -hmm. hunters or whatever, like a separate entity attaching itself to you. Kind of, yeah, yeah, where it's it's just, yeah, there's this sort of negative attachment causing friction and chaos and so whatever. And I know some people are like, oh, that's a bunch of hooey and whatever. And like, cool, you know, I can, I, I mean, I am such the consummate scientist. So like I'm the super woo spiritualist and I'm like crazy hardcore scientist. So I'm like, use whatever language you want. You know, whether I'm looking at this, story as a real thing or it's something even like the concept of taking all of this emotional baggage and moving it to this third entity of the relationship it's the same thing it allowed me to put the energy somewhere where i was able to let it go super simple right because we're all energetic beings like we know it we've seen it in the scans and the you know we create heat and energy and electricity and all the stuff so if we're an energetic being with emotion whatever that process is. So, you know, all my science friends love it because I can go the science route, (laughs) but I'm like, all my spirituals are like, I can go woo AF if I need to. So, you know, but at the end of the day, I felt better. So, you know, I do subscribe to the past lives because I feel that I connect to that. It, it's something that I pulled into these lifetimes to have such strong knowings at different points in my life. I'm an old soul, and apparently this is my last lifetime on Earth. This is my last lifetime. So that's why I'm doing big stuff. So oh. to segue into what's next, one of those big things is developing TV shows for entrepreneurs. And is that a, like, putting the cherry on top as you ascend into a like maybe a fifth dimension? Oh, process? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we can get into some shit. Right. Um, that's a whole so, other conversation. <laughs> oh my God. It's a whole so, other, right? I mean, it is, it's, 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 I mean, obviously it's energy, you know, whatever the energy will transmute into and yeah, after I'm done with this. created or destroyed, it is transmutated. It is transmuted. Yeah. So a Jew, a Christian and a Muslim mm-hmm. and Stacey Rask are on stage. <laughs> yeah. Having a debate, right? And it's a, it's a very colloquial respectful debate yeah and the question is what is the greatest evidence for or against previous and future lives 
that that you can provide. What 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 would your response to that question be? God, okay, so I'm a super nerd on this one. <laughs> yes, I want to get into it. <laughs> super nerd. But, but remember, it's a Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian. So. Yeah. Well, most of them do believe in the past lives. Most of them, because it depends on sort of the denominations within, especially like Christianity. Yeah, There's most certain... of them believe in some version, whether it was a spiritual past life or a, a physical yeah. past life or something. Well, it's as simple as if you believe in Christ, technically that's a reincarnation. So is that constituting a past life or not? Yeah, mm. I think there's, you know. Room for debate. Big but... debate is Jehovah was the pre-mortal Christ. Yeah. Jesus was, was Christ, or, or Jesus was Jesus was a prophet, mm -hmm. but was the prophet, the Messiah, the Christ, right? And then what happened thereafter and and but, people but yeah there's there's so many semantics around it but living christ being the living christ or you know that in, in the traditional the sense christ of like, energy yeah yeah so, in, in the traditional sense of like you live the scientists. life on this earth yeah on, on this earth and like mm -hmm. you talked about you were the male in the relationship jeff was the female in the relationship and mm -hmm. and whatever at that point and and other lives before that and and whatever yeah it's flip-flopped okay. a lot and it's not always been in relationship that way. Yeah, like that, I, I that sometimes reincarnation like, yeah. over and over. That is not a Jewish, a Christian, or an Islamic belief. Over and over, it's not in that sense. In like no. Buddhism and in Hinduism, yeah. and as far as reincarnation, but as far as is Islam, uh, yeah, it is very black and white. And you're done. It's like and you are always heaven, you, and that's yeah, it. you were always you. You may have had a pre-existence. Now you have your mortal existence and a post-existence. But it's always but then what? It's always you. Yeah. Right? Then you're always eternally in a some post existence. That's heaven, right? Well, it is um, me. Every lifetime I'm me. I'm just right, but, a different version of me. But that <laughs> that sense with frankly a gender change and a this yeah. and a, a, that does not meet any Islamic, Judaic, or Christian belief mm -hmm. system so you're that, right. that I've studied. Yeah. And I, I haven't studied them all. No, because I, I, I grew up <laughs> Roman Catholic and Jew. So I had two completely separate types of guilt laid on me as a kid. <laughs> right. So so you're asked that question, like, what's yeah. your greatest evidence for that? Sorry. So there have been scientific studies of kids presenting with information from previous lifetimes. There's no way they could know the details or of the stuff. So there's one specific one. It was this little boy. He was like five or six years old. And he just starts telling these stories to his parents. Did you ever hear this one? So he starts telling these stories to his parents. And he's taught basically the stories he ends up telling are of him being in World War II. The planes, the pilots, the all the details from his past lifetime. They ended up finding the family of the guy, the grave, the whole thing. They found his previous life from this kid. And he just, he knew all this stuff. So how could anybody explain? And again, this but is just scientifically. Could it have been an attachment influencing his thought processes at the time? You mean like, like being possessed by a ghost? or Not like... possessed, but maybe influenced by an attachment. And why would that be any less significant than the influence of another attachment? True. But attachments 
energetic attachments don't seem to have the same impact in terms of like the soul identity. So, but again, that you know, we go way into the metaphysical stuff that I've not even delved into in terms of all the the research. It's such like an inner. I'm not arguing against it. It's just no, such no, no, an of interesting course. and vast topic. Right. And again, it's like not for everybody. I get it. Everybody has their respective belief systems that all serve a purpose to understanding your place in the world. It's part of our sense of identity. Right. It's weird how people are, though. So I, I had a post a week or two ago and I was like, you know, hey, recommendations on on some things I want to study next, because in, literally in the last few months here. I've read multiple times, uh, sometimes two to three times through each, the King James Version of the Bible, the Tanakh, the Quran, read the Book of Mormon. I was raised Mormon, but reread the Book of Mormon a couple of times, reread several other religious texts, the Torah, like two to three times each in the last few months. And, and just from this, you know, what are the differences and what's crazy is is like 90% of it is the same shit. Like they, oh my God, there's I know. some uh, 90% of it. So all, it's all the, the same. Majority, the majority of, of wars over the last 2000 years have been fought over differences over 10 freaking percent. Yep. Oh, and also women. We mm-hmm. fight wars over women. So, and resources. Yeah. You know, women, resources. Yeah. Um, but, but no, I, I did that in college. I took the mythology course and it was interesting how we compared everything from like, African, Native American, China, you know, the the Bible, you know, like all of the India, all of these different religious texts across the world. Right. And how it was just all the same. It, it's crazy. So to me, it lends a lot to there's some there's a lot of truth to to a narrative and, and obviously some difference. But it was funny. So I, I put that in a Facebook post like I've read all these things and. I'm looking to study some more things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you recommend? And it's crazy because I had maybe 20% of the replies. I had, it, w- it was a pre-engaged with post, like hundreds of engagements, hundreds and hundreds of engagements. Less than 20% were like, hey, here's a recommendation. The majority were, I'm sure in their mind, they thought they were bearing witness to, like, I bear witness of the absolution of this. But the way it actually comes off is, let me absolutely deny 100% of any any other perspective that could possibly exist. And it was just, it was interesting reading through me. It was like, I, frankly, I feel sorry for you. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. I don't not believe in Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm studying right now. And, and I appreciate your testimony and the, how fervently you feel about that. But it, it just sucks that you're, you're, you believe so strongly in what you believe that you're, you are willing to not have an open mind. Yeah. What if, and that, what if that's that the difference. No. And what if the something you didn't know did not disprove your current belief system? Right. But you're never going to learn it. What if it strengthened your current belief system, but you're never going to learn it? And that fucking sucks for you. It was, yeah. was kind of interesting. So yeah, all this. It is. It's amazing how closed-minded people get. And that's the thing for me is like, I'm not attached to anything. Like I'm open to all of it. I learn all these different religions. I learn all of these different methodologies and belief systems. I learn all of these different things. And I simply trust my knowing and my experience. However, 
I'm so secure in my knowing that it, I'm not closed off to learning about all these other things and allowing it to be this ma malleable thing that grows and evolves with me. That's that's where I'm at. Like like I said, I don't believe you know Jesus was the Messiah. I don't believe he he was. And I'm making up my mind on it. But because I've had that open mind, mm -hmm. uh, like there's there's been just some huge revelations that have come to me. Like go and read the King James version of the Bible. Go read the the New Revelation ver version of the Bible. If you go read this the Standard Bible as as most Americans or, or most Western Europeans even are going to read it. It's funny, you you start to see people in it as people. You know what Jesus Christ, G Jesus was? He was a sarcastic freaking dude. Mm -hmm. That dude was so sarcastic. And like, a disruptor. Yeah, you can Really hear going against the status quo. Yeah. You know, all the different versions, all the different books telling the same story from their own perspective and all of them agree. That dude was sarcastic. Oh, woe is me. Woe is me. I cannot believe you guys are this freaking stupid. Like literally, if you were to put it and it's like, damn, do you know what Jesus was? Relatable. Yeah. Had I been a human being in that time, I probably would have looked at him and been like, I can relate. Mm -hmm. You know what? Oh, do you want know Barack Obama got elected to the to be the president of the United States as? A relatable person. The president you could have a beer with. Yeah. You know? You relatable is huge. Relatable, right? Yeah. And it's, and, and I'm not saying he was or wasn't a deity. All I'm saying was. But he was a spiritual teacher and a religious. Absolutely. And, a, and a well, not even the religious leader, just this powerful, the, the, impactful spiritual And that's teacher. one thing everybody agrees on. Jews yeah. is, is Islam. Everybody. He lived. He was, he was prophetic. He mm -hmm. performed miracles. And, and. And he was absolutely doing amazing, amazing things. They all agree on that. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Jews less than than some because he was a major disruptor to a lot of their socio and economic platforms. But but that's okay. Well, it's neither here it, nor there. But it's interesting. The dude was relatable. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too because he was such a like I said disruptor to the status quo and really going against the grain. I mean, in many ways you know, was was focusing on empowering women during a time that that was not necessarily the focus or the importance. And I don't think a lot of people give credit to the level of female empowerment that he was focused on with a lot of his teachings and what the stuff that he was doing, you know, even kind of going with going against the great, you know, and I hate to say going against the patriarchy, but like, you know, whatever that status quo was for everyone. He was just kind of rejecting that and just saying like, hey, what about a just a different way, right? Yeah, it's just interesting. So yeah, anyways, we're talking about past lives and stuff and it's like, <laughs> so many people are so shut off to it and yeah. so offended by it. And I'm not like, I don't know. I don't know if I did have past lives or if I'll have future lives. But I feel like if I did have past lives, it, like if if that is a truth, I feel like I am an old soul. I've always been told that since I was a kid. Me too. And I feel like if I was an old soul and I did have past lives, what did I do mm. in those past lives? And and I've never had any other thoughts uh, as far as gender or anything like that goes. But like, I do feel like if I had a past life, I actually do feel like at, in one of my past lives, I do feel like I was a religious leader. I mm. do feel like in one of my past lives, I was a political leader. I do mm. feel like in one of my past lives... 
that I experienced some major trauma in military. I didn't get to serve in the military. I tried. They wouldn't let me in because of some medications I was on. And by the time I got through the waiting period off of those, I was, I had already started my first business and I was on my entrepreneurial, I was ready to get married and whatever. But to this day, like my entire life, even when I was a kid, I cannot watch a military movie, whether it's Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers or Hacksaw Ridge or, or I can't watch it without being in tears most of the time. And it's usually not when somebody dies. Usually it's those like quiet moments when like they're sitting there huddled like in, in, you know, this, this brotherhood or this. And the experience, I I can't not, it hits me so hard and so deep. And like always, you know, hide away, the lights are off and Camille's over there and I'm like, pull the blanket up here and I just crunch some popcorn and I'm just in tears and it hits me so damn deep. And I, I really feel like if, if I did have a past life or, or lives, one of those, like I, it hits me so deep because I lived that trauma bond. I, I was there and like, but that's it, feels it so right? familiar. Yeah. That's, those are the experiences that I, I, I look at, you know, when we have these things that are so hard to explain, right? That knowing that confidence, I mean, it's like, how is past lives different from believing in miracles? I mean, really? You know, believing in reincarnation, believing in not that different. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean I it's... like to think, Stacey, if I if I did have a life as a religious leader in the past though, that I was like that one dude. You see him on like TikTok or Instagram reels or whatever, the dude that tried to bless COVID away. And also <laughs> have you seen that? No. Oh I my don't God. as much as I contribute content to this social dude, media. Like he runs one of the like billion dollar mega churches. Has oh, okay. private jets and stuff, and and he's like, COVID, be gone. I blow the wind of God on you. <laughs> I feel like I might have done that at some oh, point okay. in a in an abandoned mall that I happened to buy out and run my church in, fucking <laughs> Texas. Well, yeah, or Florida, right? Yeah. Oh my God! No, Lehigh Acres. Oh, are you kidding? Everything's in a strip mall down here. My yeah. my friend had her wedding reception in a strip mall event venue. So everything's in a strip mall. No, it's it's great because it's like I do recommend like if you're into it, doing a past life regression. Like it was really cool. So as a little kid, you know, we talked about the what inspired the knowing to the military was, you know, the same thing. At like eight, nine years old, I had this visceral, physical reaction only to Vietnam stuff. And it was only Vietnam. It wasn't World War II or anything else, Korea. I didn't have the same reaction. So there was this knowing even then. I was like, my past life, my most recent past life was a young man who was killed in Vietnam. And for that same for that same reason, it was just that was creeping up in childhood. And it was just, you know, watching these things and having this like flashback type experience. And and so those are the things that it's like, just like the miracles, you know, that's the stuff that's hard to explain. And so this is the framework I put around it is like, oh, this is stuff that I, this energetic imprint that my soul's bringing into every iteration of a physical existence. You know, when I did the past life regression, there were some boring lives. You know, there were definitely some boring lives. <laughs> but the furthest one I got back to and I, as, as nerdy as I am with things, 
And I do know some history stuff. I'm not a history buff. So that's not something even in my subconscious that I would know. I learned a lot more about it afterwards. But I uh, I did the past life regression. And the last version of myself, I was this. I was basically a warrior, but not because that was my identity. I was actually like a farmer. and But I was on the horse after battle, getting ready to go back into battle, defending my homeland from the invasion of the Roman army. And it was the look of myself and the look of my comrades and everything. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, so I came out of this experience of who I was in this in this time. I was like, I have to research this, right? And I dug down and and dove into it. And it was the invasion of the Roman army into Persia. So I was this Persian farmer defending my village in battle. Super cool. And I, I it was like all, progression. all the vision, all the things that I saw, the things that I smelled, the things that I touched in this is, you know, it's just having someone hypnotically guide you into going into deeper and deeper states. And they're not telling you what to see. Yeah, there's people who do. They literally, they're experts in past life regression. Interesting. Yeah. So it was really cool because I was like, oh my gosh. So I saw this stuff and I had this experience as I'm just going through these these visions coming into my awareness. And, you know, and it's like all hypnosis. You're not out. You know, you're aware of what's happening around you, the whole experience. And, but yeah, when I got out, I'm like, oh my gosh, I started like nerding out and getting online and looking for all the stuff. And then like, I'm seeing the stuff that I saw, you know, and I just don't recall knowing anything about this in this lifetime, right? I mean, people could argue all day long, like, well, you probably learned about it in school at some time, you know, whatever, but not in that detail. Yeah. So, you know, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I like it. But, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm for it. I'm, I think it's cool. I get it accused cool of being things. a closed-minded, hard-headed person, but I'm a pretty fucking open-minded person. You know, people call you names when you hold to boundaries. That's the problem. You're not an enabler and they don't like that. So that's what you're a hard ass for and closed minded. You're like, no, you just have boundaries. Yeah. So fuck you, Tyler. It's so funny. So, so yeah, I mean, and this is all the stuff that's, you know, whether this is my last lifetime or not, or there is other lifetimes or not, you know, I know this is, I'm going with, this is the last one. So then it's my eternal whatever. So yeah, this is, is entrepreneurs are an underserved market in terms of television. And so creating programming specifically to help them learn the real work that it takes to be an entrepreneur, I think would be super helpful because it's a huge missing piece. You know, if you do any searching of like, you know, shows for entrepreneurs, almost all of them are scripted. And then the ones that they do show like Shark Tank or any of the rescue type shows, you're seeing it after the problem, right? Not the process. I want to show the process. That's important. You know, so it's going to be showing showing the real <laughs> the real stuff the behind the scenes you know but doing it in a really empowering way so it's helping people see themselves and learning oh my god it's imposter syndrome whether you're at 500,000 or 100,000 or 500 million 
still there, <laughs> you know, shit like that. Like you're not alone. There are all these people going through this. You're your genius and and superpowers. The the root of that is also the root of your sabotage. So be careful. Here's the things to look out for. Here's what to actually focus on so you can be better and live your dreams, live your purpose, have the fulfillment, be amazing. However you choose to do it. I love it. What's the show going to be called again? I'm not sharing all of that just yet. Damn it, Stacy. Want, I want all well, the stuff. show title, the working title for it is Success School. You know, simple and clear. Something that's appealing to more than just business owners. Right. But ultimately, especially post-COVID, you know, we have this whole new surge of people starting their own businesses. Everybody's got a side hustle. Everybody's an affiliate. Everybody's a whatever. You know, this is all entrepreneurship. Even Uber and Lyft, that's entrepreneurship. You know be valuable is for people that, because entrepreneurship, entrepreneur has been the buzzword in the last 20 fucking years. Yeah. And, and like people don't actually get what entrepreneur is. Entrepreneur is not having an LLC. Like all you had to do is not murder somebody yesterday and you can have a fucking LLC. It doesn't make you special. <laughs> and an ent entrepreneur is somebody who creates value where it didn't previously exist. Owning a business and being an entrepreneur, very, very different. And, and entrepreneur, it gets, it, it almost gets looked down at now because so many people have been like, I'm an entrepreneur. And, and then they celebrate their successes. People don't realize, like, I get it. You work at the factory, you have sleepless nights because bills and family and this and that and the other too. When a true entrepreneur doesn't sleep at night, it's because I, I'm not, I don't not sleep at night because of my bills. I will always find a way to feed my family one way or another. I don't care what I have to do. Like I'll go or myself out on the street, like whatever. But uh, not that anyone would pay for it, but you know, I can try. Lies. Everybody, everybody, I'm a, I'm everybody's a sellable. A, I'm a hell of a salesman, but. Only fans. What keeps me up at night is the multitudes of families who don't get to eat if I don't fucking show up as my best. That keeps me up. That's the weight that I can't shed. It's, it's, mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, when I have a success, I'm going to fucking celebrate it. Right. Mm -hmm. But then it gets taken to this extreme. So what I think would be super, because there are so many people that think they're an entrepreneur, but they're not. And there's so many people who are trying to be an entrepreneur, but shouldn't be, they shouldn't be because it's been glorified. Being an entrepreneur is not glorious. Mm -hmm. It is not. It's just, it, it is what it is. Being an entrepreneur is equally glorious mm -hmm. and showing the process and the value that equally glorifies entrepreneurialism and entrepreneurialism. Most, most LLC owners and entrepreneurs, business owners right now should be an entrepreneur for an entrepreneur. And that doesn't mean you work for them. You work fucking with them. If they're not any any entrepreneur that's like you work for me is not an entrepreneur. They're a business owner. Entrepreneurs don't want people working for them. They want people working with them. That's where value is built, right? Huge. If you could find a way to show that through your show, it would change the face of America and maybe the world. But um, I love entrepreneurialism that. is overly glorified. Or people laugh at it because everybody's like, oh, what are you doing? You know, and it's the 32-year-old really? still living at home. And no no shade on those people. But if you're like, well, I'm there because I'm an entrepreneur. I'm working on some hustles, you know, or whatever. 
yeah, it's it's laughed at or overly glorified. Yeah, but the reason for all of that is it's misunderstood. Yeah, it's super misunderstood because a lot of people, I mean, somebody even said recently their kids like, well, you know, I just want to be an entrepreneur. Like, okay, but how do you want to bring value? Well, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Everybody that sells weed is a fucking entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, some of the most amazing business people start, started selling drugs, right? Right. You know? So it's like entrepreneurialism isn't for everybody. In fact, it's for it's not for the majority. It's for the minority. However, that's entrepreneurialism is not the glory. Mm-hmm. True entrepreneurs don't even want the glory. True, like the best entrepreneurs I know, the best entrepreneurs I know don't want the glory. They're empaths. The best entrepreneurs I know are empaths. And introverts and they usually. They want everyone else to have the glory, the income, the everything else. And there tends to be some income that comes along with that. Yeah. But but they want it for everyone else as much or more than they want it for themselves. So be on my team. Have the glory. I'll put you in the newspapers. Uh, news station wants to freaking interview us. Cool. I would rather you go on that. But entrepreneurs have a hard time finding that person because everybody's trying to be an entrepreneur. Fucking stop. You were meant to be an entrepreneur. And, and the impact you can provide, the income you can make, the is so much better as an entrepreneur than an entrepreneur. Holy shit. That's a concept that so overlooked. It is. Well, and that's the thing too, is like success is not a solo sport. You know, it's the solopreneurs are the ones that really end up struggling down the road because you end up in that place of burnout and overwhelm if you're trying to scale and not have team. You can leverage your systems as much as possible, but at some point you're going to have to have team. And that's the thing. But that's also the same catalyst of why it's so important to do that deep inner work. Because if you want it, these people with you, if you care more about the impact you're making in the world with these other people, whether it's the people on your team and their families, or even your clients and how they're able to impact the world because they're doing big, amazing things right? Like that ripple effect is phenomenal. And when you're in that place, that also means, like you said, you want it more than they do. And I see this happen over and over and over again, right? The high empathy, high drive equals what I call that true alpha. And if you don't keep that empathy in check and build the boundaries, you're going to hire people who you see the potential that they never live up to. And you're going to surround yourself with people you want it more than they do or have clients where you want it more than they do. And you're going to end up in that emotional burnout where you end up always creating the same cycle where, of course, you have to do it yourself because you're hiring the wrong people because it's from those old wounds that you're surrounding yourself with the same dysfunction in your business. You're bringing it in. You're not creating limits and boundaries. You're not creating accountability, structure, systems, safety, or people to shine in their zone of genius. Yeah. I don't know. I'm excited for it. It'd be a good show. Thanks. It might be a couple, honestly. Could be a couple. Who knows? We'll see. Who knows? But I'll let you know if you if we get to the place with sponsors and investors. So before I let you go, before I, no, I just I I know your time's precious and 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 we booked three hours and I don't want to I don't want to overshoot. But I also know 
between you and I, we have the tendency to like, we can go down rabbit hole for as long as we want to go. So <laughs> We can. We do it monthly. <laughs> I'm trying to like be mindful of the clock here. But there's okay. a question that I, I tr- always try and wrap up a podcast with. Mm-hmm. And it it's just tended to be a really good question. And I think in this in this episode, in this podcast, I think it can be that much more impactful because we've already kind of hit or hinted around that, right? So the question is basically, if I was to bring it down to, to that level, if if this was your last moment, if you got off this podcast and you were like, oh, I want some fucking Panda Express, you got in the car and uh, you got hit at the stop sign down the street, you're done, you're done, you're killed. We're taking Stacy off this earth. And that was the lie, last life you had to live. Yeah. And this was the last nine, eight minutes you had to provide any kind of impact to anyone. Eight billion people currently. And what about all the future people that, that, that come as well? If this was your last opportunity to provide any kind of impact, what kind of impact would you want to provide? Why? How would you deliver it? Who are you trying to help? Why does it mean so much to you? Okay. I love this question so much because it's way bigger than just the what's the final quote you want to leave everybody with right this is what is your legacy of impact you want to leave on the world and what i've learned in the value of my own life journey and then all the research the studying the engagement the helping and serving and impacting the way that i do i've learned if everyone learned to have one boundary one boundary alone, and it's the boundary of no disrespect, the world would change. And this is about recognizing, one, that boundaries are about you focusing on only what you can control, and that's it. So that in itself is impactful. If people just started taking responsibility for what they can actually control, letting go of the rest, it would be phenomenal. But then with that, if the simplest singular boundary was no disrespect and they no longer allowed in their little bubble a disrespect of themselves, their body, their wisdom, their time, their energy, their goals, they would stop destroying what they're capable of because they would no longer allow that to happen. We'd change the world. There'd be massive revolutions. And most importantly, people would stop trying to control other people. People would stop worrying all the time about what other people are doing. <laughs> right? Why do, you, why do you give two shits about any of that? Why? why? Why does that mean something to you? Because it's such a simple thing that anybody can do. There's absolutely no reason people cannot simply say, okay, in any situation, hold on, what's my responsibility here? What 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 can I actually control? It is literally the end to suffering because everyone's constant chronic suffering comes from always focusing on shit they can't control. Doesn't and even because you suffered and you can't bear to see other people suffer or like what? Why does it mean so much for other people to get it? It's like, simply just... Damage. Well, the selfish perspective would be, hey, now I'm around a bunch of people that <laughs> are all like in a better, more positive state, like God. like not a bunch of assholes or like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, a bunch of Karens and Kevins and, you know, or yeah, but, but I guess, whatever they're called. <laughs> why? So like if if 
the legacy is control what you can control. Like Stacy, you're one in eight billion. Like fuck all these others. Control you. And why is it so important that that if these were your last words, if they had the opportunity to reach eight billion people and make an impact, wh- why this? Why does that it, mean something to you? Well, it means something to me. One, because obviously that's been the underpinning of the entire story for me. I, because I'm such the, you know, science nerd and strategy geek and problem solver, it's get to the root, get to the root and then focus on the behavior. What is the thing that I can do differently or the conditions that I can change to create the desired behavior to get the result that I want? It's simply empowering people to take control of their lives. That's all, you know? And if that tiny little nuance can impact somebody, even one person out of the 8 billion, then I did my job. It's so simple. And yet people reject it in any moment. What's mine? What can I control here? There's always something you can control to change your state, how you're feeling, the outcome, the experience, all of it. It's just, are you willing to do it? Most people aren't, but people like you and I are. So if I can light a fire in the people that have the fire because they're willing to do the hard things, the uncomfortable things, different from the day-to-day, the autopilot, the comfort zone, they're going to do big things. And the world needs more disruptors doing big things. The world does need more disruptors. For damn sure. Mm-hmm. For damn sure. Stacy, thank you for being on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. It was such like Joe Rogan style, long conversation. That's what it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. You know, the, not necessarily Joe Rogan style, just enough time to talk about the shit we wanted to talk about, not the shit we needed to talk about. Yeah. The scripted stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, this is way better. You know, you get to get paint the full picture for people who want to, you know, binge the story yeah, it's, in and context. I would love for people to realize what it takes to to do this too. Like a three hour, a three hour session, you know, oh, it's just three hours of the day. But like when you're running a high level businesses, that represents thousands of dollars per hour. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is probably a thirty thousand dollar episode between you and I. I mean it it just is what it is. Yeah. But that's what it takes to just kind of get to some of the shit. So and I I feel like we covered some shit. I'm super excited. I'm super we grateful. Did. Well, all that junk, I mean, bringing it to light, that's that's where the power lies, you know, being willing to say, no, this is part of who I am and I can use this as an asset and do epic shit or not. I, yeah, that's the best way to end it. Epic shit. Do that might even shit. be the episode title. Do some epic shit. Epic shit. By focusing on what you can control. I'm excited to hang out with you guys. I know we might not get to hang out as much as we wanted to in Scottsdale, but I'm excited to hang out regardless. It's been too long. For sure. I agree. I feel the same way. I'm super pumped. And maybe it's even, you know, Friday. We're there all day Friday. Are you booked up? I think we're driving down. So we're, we don't have a fly out date. I mean, we've got little boys in it. We need to get back to and, and whatever, but uh, yeah, we'll figure something out. We'll hang out. We'll find a way to hang out. I'm sure we'll hang out. Yeah. One way or another. Well, thank you so much. I love you, brother. Like, this is just phenomenal. So much fun. We we, we always have such great conversation anyway. So I can't wait to meet Camille. I agree. She's she's amazing. You're going to love her. I'm pretty sure she'll love you. And seriously, love you to death, Stacey. Thank you for being here. 
You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into the A to C podcast today. I appreciate you joining me on this unfiltered journey into the minds of remarkable people. I hope you enjoyed the candid conversations, the authenticity, and the insights shared. Remember, this is an ad-free podcast, so your support in sharing this with others, well, it means the world to me. If you want to stay connected with me in the podcast and be the first to know about our upcoming guests and episodes, follow me, the podcast, whatever, on social media, A to C podcast on Facebook, and we'll get our Instagram and everything else set up uh, at cporter389 is my own personal stuff on all platforms. Your feedback, your ideas, they're invaluable to me. Drop me a message, um, drop the podcast a message, share your thoughts, let me know who you'd like to hear from next. Together, we're on this mission to explore all the facts of success and life, but be candid as hell about it. So I appreciate you. Come find me, come follow me, and let's do some awesome things together. Appreciate y'all.